0: I'm extremely excited to announce that the Healing Power of Energy retreat at Quixmala in Mexico has been officially rescheduled and is happening, folks. It's January 30th through February 6th, 2021. It's a seven-night transformative retreat fusing ancient healing wisdom with advanced modern technology. I'll be there documenting the whole week featuring Dr. Rashid Butar, Dr. Jerry Rivera Genio and Robert Slovak. It's going to be incredible. For more information and to get your tickets, go to lukestory.com forward slash events. That's lukestory.com slash events. The healing power of energy retreat at Quixmala in Mexico, January 30th through February 6th, 2021. Hope to see you there.
1: It's literally functioning as like the most optimized city in the world is just your typical backyard garden that kind of matrix when we start put building economic systems and impact investment funds and all that around that
0: design
1: we, we can only win the game
0: i'm luke story for the past 22 years i've been relentlessly committed to my deepest fashion designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of spirituality health, psychology, and personal development. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. I'd like to take a moment to talk about EMF or electromagnetic frequencies. Now, if you're a regular listener to this show, you are no stranger to the topic because I've covered it with so many of our past guests. You're probably aware of the dangers of EMF exposure in your home, but you have no idea where to start when it comes to fixing it. You might be concerned about your exposure to the current 3G, 4G, and 5G wireless networks now active in most major cities. You might have even attempted to test the levels in your home yourself with EMF meters you found online and just became frustrated and confused and kind of gave up on the project. Well, same story here. That's why I created the EMF Home Assessment Masterclass with my friend Brian Hoyer. I've been passionate about this topic for many years and I finally took it upon myself to take all of the information that I've gained and create an amazing video course about it. Now, this is going to be released in the coming weeks, so I wanted to give you a heads up on it. You can go to slash EMF Masterclass, that's lukestory.com, EMF Masterclass, and sign up for the wait list. You can also text on a US phone the word EMF Masterclass to the number 44222. So again, you can text EMF Masterclass to 44222 or go to lukestory.com forward slash EMF Masterclass and you will have the opportunity to enter the wait list. And when you do so, you're going to save a 100 bucks off the course. Yes, that's right. This is over four hours of content. There's seven modules, six bonus videos. And in this particular course, you're going to learn everything, literally everything you could have ever wanted to know about not only how to find the EMF in your home, but how to fix it. It's pretty awesome. So again, go to lukestory.com forward slash EMF masterclass or using a US phone, you can text the word EMF masterclass to the number 44222. One of the coolest things about being a podcast host in the health and wellness space is that companies send me products to try all the time. Now I have to admit, some of the time I'm not that impressed. They're sort of generic, nothing new. Cool, another supplement, another herb. Good for you, good luck. But it doesn't really catch me. But when this company Sovereignty sent me their two products called Purpose and Dream, I was immediately impressed. They come in these little packets. It's called BioWrapped, it's trademarked to protect the potency. And they are therapeutic doses of clinically studied herbs. So they're traditional Chinese and Ayurvedic herbs that are fermented and mixed with various hemp products grown in California. So not CBD, but they contain something called CBG and something called CBN, other parts of the cannabis plant, basically. Which, by the way, uh, all have less than 0.3% THC. So you're not going to get faded But what you are going to do is you're going to work your ass off when you take the product called Purpose. It is amazing for daytime alertness and focus. I take one of these every morning when I wake up, legit, straight up. It's amazing. In fact, I've actually really laid off the coffee lately as a result of taking great products like this. Their product Purpose is a real smooth high. You know what I mean? It's got a little bit of caffeine. It's got 150 milligrams, some from organic coffee berry, and also some caffeine from something called Zoom RX, which is an extended release caffeine. So this is very smooth. The combination of the hemp products and the different forms of caffeine, which are natural extracts, create a really smooth product. And then their dream product is absolutely fantastic for meditation, chilling out at the end of the day, and it absolutely improves my sleep. So I'm super stoked on both of these. It's a great way to start the day and a great way to end the day. And when I say therapeutic dose, I'm serious. Like you really feel it. It's not like some of the herb pills you take and you're like, I don't know, did it do anything? Did it work? The way they pack these little packets, you cut them open, mix them in some water, they taste great, you bang them back. And uh, something happens and I like what happens. If you want to check it out, here's what you do. Get over to Sovereignty.co slash Luke. That's S-O-V-E-R-E-I-G-N-T-Y. Sovereignty.co slash Luke. No discount, but if you don't like the product, they will give your money back and buy you your favorite supplement. I know it's crazy, but that's what they do. That's Sovereignty.co slash Luke. You're going to love it. You're never going to want to return it. You're going to get addicted like I am. You can thank me later. Sovereignty.co. Man, do we have a special episode for you today. Dr. Zach Bush, Don't Fear the Virus, Your Body's Immunity Blueprint and Humanity's Awakening, Episode 304. Man, we've had so many requests for Dr. Bush over the years. I want to say a couple dozen. And I was finally able to make this happen with the help of my friend Josh Trent of Wellness Force Radio who not only facilitated my meeting, Dr. Bush, but also provided a living room in which we could record the episode, which was also uh, recorded on video, by the way. So you might want to watch this one on YouTube or on my site because the conversation was very free-flowing, and I think it's going to be a fun one to watch. It was uh, quite animated and passionate, to say the least. Before we get into the conversation with Dr. Bush, I want to invite you to check out my new EMF course. It's the first course I've ever created, After four and a half years of doing this podcast, if you're concerned about electromagnetic frequencies in your life and find it baffling and confusing, frustrating, et cetera, this course is going to fix it. It's called the EMF Home Safety Masterclass. It's over five hours of content and it's only $149. So if you want to learn all about EMF in a very simple, accessible way and learn how to fix it easily and quickly, go to lukestory.com slash EMF Masterclass. That's lukestory.com/slash EMF masterclass. Let's talk about our guest, Dr. Zach Bush MD, who's a renowned multidisciplinary physician of internal medicine, endocrinology, hospice care, and internationally recognized educator on the microbiome as it relates to human health, soil health, food systems, and a regenerative future for all fascinating, beautiful man. I'm telling you, man, this is one of my favorite conversations of all time in my life. Very inspiring. And I'm also guessing that by the end of the show, you're going to want to check out his product, Ion Biome. He's not the sales type. He was like, we had one sitting behind him and I was like, oh, there's the product. He's like, yeah, whatever. He was much more into the conversation. Uh, But I always feel when I find something awesome and it's a new discovery I want to share with you, so I highly recommend that you go check out ionbiome.com. That is spelled I-O-N-B-I-O-M-E, ionbiome.com. And uh, you can get yourself a discount over there with the code LUKE1KS, which is active through November 30th, 2020. Now I've been on this stuff for a couple months. I, I was on it before when it was called Restore a couple of years back. And I re-upped my supply. And not only has it helped my gut, but it has revolutionized my dog Cookie's gut health. She used to throw up all the time. I couldn't fix it. Took her to the best holistic vets, fed her all the best biohack dog food, and she continued to vomit all over the house, which really sucks for her. Uh, it's, it's no friend to the carpets either, but really it was just sad and I was bummed. I love my dog Cookie. And she would always be kind of, you know, chucking up the bile, and uh, I got her on this Ion Biome, and I swear to God, in the past month, she has only thrown up once, which was two nights ago. And she seemed to be just sick for some reason. It wasn't like her normal, just retching for no reason. And I have to attribute it to this product. I mean, I haven't really introduced anything else new. So um, highly recommend that you check that out and get yourself a little discount there. All right, here's what we talk about in this conversation. But as I lay out these bullets, I want you to know there is so much more, especially in the second hour. I mean, I think this one's a couple hours long. We could have gone forever. It might even be three. I don't know. You're going to be glad. It sounds like a lot. But I want you to know that toward the second half, this conversation gets really deep, esoteric, and very spiritual. And I think that is the core of Zach Bush's work. I mean, he's a genius physician, And his understanding of science and research is unparalleled, but this man's heart is really where the magic is. And he just brought the love, man. It was such an inspiring conversation. So even if you can't get this one in, in one sitting, please bookmark it and make sure you finish the show. Because we go into the beginning really talking about the nature of viruses, et cetera, and then get into some of the deeper stuff later on. So make sure you catch the whole show. And please, by all means, share this with with as many friends as you feel fit. Um, It's a really important conversation and not just because it's on my podcast. Um, You know, I'd love that you promote the show and share it with your friends because I want the show to be bigger and better than ever. But this is really, I think, an important message right now with the, I don't even the, the, the viral situation. I don't even know what to call this thing at this point. Um, that'll be cleared up, by the way, in this conversation. But, um, you know, so many people are just confused and challenged right now. There's so much information coming from both sides. You know, the people that think this thing is totally fake and the whole thing doesn't exist. And then people that are more moderate and then the complete insanity of the media and the medical system uh, that are, in my opinion, being less than honest about what's going on. So I think this is going to clear up a lot of confusion for so many people. So please, again, share this episode with a few friends. It's really easy to just click, text, share, boom, email, post it to your social, what have you. Here are a few of the things we talk about with Zach Bush. The difference between terrain theory and germ theory. And this is the bulk of the first half of the conversation. Then we pose the question uh, whether or not the COVID-19 virus has been isolated and proven to exist. The accuracy of the testing being used for the virus, the mass misdiagnosis of COVID deaths, how the pollution in Wuhan, Northern Italy, and other areas contributed to the positive numbers, the problem with antibiotics in our water and food supply, the 5G and cell tower radiation sickness syndrome, the aerosol spraying, the geoengineering, and how it's affecting our soil negatively. Why there is zero talk from the medical establishment on immune function and a healthy lifestyle when it comes to combating viruses and other illnesses. And then we find out if the flu vaccine makes people more susceptible to coronaviruses and how to stay positive and hopeful in the face of such drastic medical tyranny. Why he's exposing the dangers of Roundup or glyphosate and has made that one of his core missions. Why you should avoid all wheat products that are not organic the fact that commercial flowers and golf courses, by the way, are being sprayed with glyphosate and why you might not want to smell the roses, how pets and children are being exposed to glyphosate slash Roundup by playing on sprayed grass, and then we find out if taking activated charcoal after a non-organic meal helps, and then finally how Ion Biome works to heal the gut from glyphosate exposure, including your pets, as I mentioned with my dog, Cookie. So with that, my friends, I'm going to go ahead and dive into this fascinating and inspiring conversation with Dr. Zach Bush, MD. Enjoy the show and share it with a friend. Thanks. Dr. Zach Bush, welcome to the show, man.
1: So glad to be here with you, (laughs) Lee. Me too. So awesome.
0: I'm so excited. I'm really glad we're able to do this in person Uh, As I was saying, I'm so grateful for technology and Zoom, but there's just something more meaningful every time about sharing space with someone. And before I forget, I want to thank our friend Josh from Wellness Force Radio, uh, who has been so kind enough to uh, lend us his little Japanese-style Zen table here to record. (laughs) Lovely San Diego, California. And uh, yeah, man, there's so many things I want to cover. It's like I almost don't know where to start. Uh, because I have a feeling this is going to be a vortex of a conversation that <laughs> takes us to many different places. But I guess you have to start somewhere. So let's just do this and set the tone. Um, you know, the world is in a crazy place right now. I'm doing my best to frame it as an awakening and the end of an old paradigm and the beginning of a new one. Can be challenging uh, because the old power structures seem to be holding on with a death grip. But let's start with what's new and exciting and positive in your own personal life right now.
1: I think it's a an- A sense of surrender. Ultimately, you know, it's not fun to surrender all, all the time. It can be painful and frustrating, but never before in my life have I seen an array of such vast number of variables in my life that I can't control. (laughs) And so everything from my movement around the country and the world to my ability to speak what I feel like is my truth to uh, the ability to connect with family and loved ones, to the ability to just breathe real air and see smiles when I walk down the street has been taken away. And so it's these things are ultimately out of my control and it leads to this existential experience but also an opportunity to ask why did i need those reference points to validate my experience as to where i am and who i am and what i'm here on purpose to do and i'm realizing that i took a lot from the public engagement and from speaking events where i'm engaging with hundreds or a few thousand people at a time i i was using that that global energy of connection to validate my sense of purpose, trajectory of my career, all these things, when all those things get taken away and the world threatens what you think is your identity, it's frightening at moments. It feels really frustrating at moments, but it's also ultimately an opportunity for me to find the deeper me. And that's the opportunity I feel.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I definitely relate to that. Um, it has a lot to do with framing right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like all about framing, seeing the situation we're in and like finding the lesson in it instead of finding the the fear or the frustration. Um, I want to just like jump right in. You know, I've done a few shows about <clears throat> this current situation we find ourselves in. And um, some of them have been, I would say, you know, not not in alignment with the official narrative medically on... COVID and the nature of viruses and what's going on and whether or not what's going on really necessitates the losses of freedoms that we're experiencing. But some people have been a a bit more moderate. And then I've had David Icke on the other spectrum. It's like Mm -hmm. the whole thing is a scam. It's all pollution and toxicity. There is no virus. It's all just a new world order control grid thing, uh, which I don't. You know, disagree with necessarily, but I know your perspective seems to be a bit more moderate and in the middle. And you're someone who's deeply spiritual, in my estimation, at least, and also someone who's rooted in science. So I thought a great place to start, perhaps, would be if you know, and this could be a five-hour question in and of itself, but just the basics of terrain theory versus germ theory, and and how that has played into the the widely different perspectives we have on this pandemic.
1: Yeah, this is an old argument that's been alive in academic circles certainly since the the mid to late 1800s and some of the ones that were made famous were the disputes between Bessemer and uh, Pasteur, and of course, Pasteur ended up winning that kind of general agreement of the argument as he was arguing for germ theory, and he was making the argument that you know these bad pathogens are so bad that they can attack any physical body and and cause a human person to become ill um, or die. And so he was looking at things like cholera and things like this. And at the same time, Bachamp in his twin studies was observing that twins with identical genetics were experiencing much different disease paths over their lifetime and in fact could be in the same environment with the same genetics and, and have different outcomes from exposure to a single thing like cholera or pneumonia or whatever's going on in in the environment. And so he was arguing that it's a train of the individual must be much more complex than we were seeing and that that train would then dictate the the individual's response to the environment. And one of those responses is, is illness and I think you know, this is a little bit of an extension of his argument into a few other you know, people since then, which is getting into the question of, is that a bad thing to become ill? You know, when you mount a fever and you have this huge inflammatory reaction, your immune system is mobilized in ways which it absolutely is not mobilized in a healthy state is there a role for that in survival longevity you know disease resistance and ultimately wellness and the answer seems to be increasingly yes there is a role in in that you know immune response that's activated by a virus or an interaction with an unbalanced microbiome or whatever it is and the terrain is then predicting in some ways what you need and whatever's happening to you right now is what you need most and the usual reaction to that when somebody says anything about train theory is people jump to, oh, well, doesn't HIV kill people? Doesn't Ebola kill people? Or didn't polio kill people? Like they jump to all these historic things that are only understood through a very narrow lens of germ theory. And so we have a story or a narrative around how polio was a virus. And then we mounted an immune system reaction with a vaccine. And therefore, everybody came immune to this virus. And then we have this story about HIV causes AIDS. Every peer-reviewed science article that studies HIV, their first couple sentences includes this: the statement HIV is the virus that causes the, the condition of AIDS. And that is there. I can tell you, as a researcher and a scientist who spent many years applying for grants, that's how you get your grant. Is you say, "Here's the problem I'm going to solve." And you want to state, you know, in this case, this global pandemic of, of HIV is related to this end-stage disease process of AIDS. If we just go and look at that one thing, that can't be true because everybody with HIV then would get AIDS. And the fact is, actually, it's a quite a small minority of people that will go on to get AIDS who have HIV in their bloodstream. In fact, there's a lot of literature, thousands and thousands of scientific studies that have been done on HIV latency, which is how the HIV virus can just sit inside red blood cells in a non-replicating state and cause absolutely no harm for decades in individuals. And, And those individuals never seem to go on to pronounce any disease. When we take the HIV virus and we expose any mammal to it, whether it be rodents or monkeys, we've never shown that it can cause AIDS. In fact, for the majority of the time, they don't show any symptoms. In one study so far, they've only been able to show this once. That in this specific simian population of, of monkeys, they were able to give very high doses of HIV, and, and ultimately, over time, it took you know years before they started to manifest you know situations of immune shift. But they never showed AIDS. They never had Kaposi's sarcoma and all of the other things that you, that are actually. In the definition of AIDS, AIDS is a syndrome of many different conditions that are actually caused by a host of viruses. And so Kaposi sarcoma is caused by a specific herpes virus. And you know, the leukemias associated with it, HIV and AIDS are caused by a different herpes virus. And so you've got about six or eight herpes viruses that are in the mix of the syndrome that would be there. And so the statement HIV causes AIDS is actually highly inaccurate at the scientific level and and yet we like to have those reductive statements so that we can get funding so that we can make that sound like there's a simple problem and we're going to find a simple solution pharmaceutical adaptation of immune response to hiv or whatever we're studying and so through this reductionist need we have in science in order to get funding it's led to this you know belief system this long-running you know 100 year old Journey into the belief that there's all of these single pathogens that cause single diseases. And yet that breaks down every time we then try to extrapolate that to another individual. And these studies have gotten extensive. Even as far back as the 60s, they were doing studies where they would like find a horse with a viral illness, put a bag over their head, and make them breathe in that bag for an hour, and then take that bag and put it on another horse and have them breathe those respiratory viruses for an hour. And they could not get another horse sick, no matter how much virus they exposed them to. And so we can sometimes induce illness in a petri dish you know through viral transfection or something like that but in the in the train of a human body or a horse or whatever mammal you're studying there's this complex train that's going to predict whether or not there's going to be any response to uh, a stimulus and that's ultimately all it is a virus a bacteria these are stimulus stimuli to our immune system and then our immune system as a holistic environment never attacks that thing, that's another misperception is that there's some sort of warfare for sterility. We're not a sterile environment. We used to think you know, as of, I'd say 10 years ago, 99% of the docs out there would have said, yeah, the the human body's sterile unless it's really sick and a bone marrow transplant, immune system's wiped out. Now you can have bacteria and candy. Genomics has totally changed that where we now know everything from my liver to my bloodstream, my kidneys, my lungs, even my brain has healthy flora in it. They have has, has healthy bacteria and fungi present in many different forms in the case of the fungi. I can have yeast forms, I can have hyphal forms, all kinds of different you know, structures of organic garden happening in every single organ system in the healthy state. And in fact, if I start to eradicate that organic garden from my body, I become prone to those diseases that we would want to prevent. And so if we take a look now at the terrain, as you stated there, of the American population, for example, over the last 30 years, we've seen an exponential rise in almost every chronic disease that's, that's been named today. And that's anything from the neurodegenerative conditions in our elders, like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, but then in our middle-aged ALS, MS, then down into our children, the neurologic deficiencies that we see with attention deficit, hyperactivity disorders, autism spectrum disorders, and then the blend in there is mood disorders and sleep disorders and sexual dysfunction. All of that is showing that the neurologic function of humanity within a single country that has extraordinary genetic for variability and variety is expressing the same you know, disease in, in the whole system. And so we can say with confidence that we have done something in the last 30 years to the train of humanity within the United States or other Western countries or developing countries that are adopting our systems of lifestyle to a train that is embracing the need for increased stimulus. We need a ton of stimulus right now to create enough immune activity to survive the toxicity of what we've done.
0: Wow. Damn. That's a good breakdown. Thank you. <laughs> and that was really a question that I did not know the answer to. Sometimes... I feel like I know a little bit about something and I'll ask a guest so that they can inform the unlearned audience. But that one to me is still a little bit nebulous. So thanks for breaking that down in a way that makes sense. So based on that uh, perspective, then one could look at something like a virus, bacteria, fungi, et cetera, that's happening within the terrain as not something that is necessarily our enemy, but could potentially manifest as such if the terrain is dysfunctional and isn't supportive of balance right so from that perspective uh what is a virus in its essence and why have they been vilified in our experience yeah so on one level this sounds like a scientific
1: discussion um and Maybe have no influence on your life and be unimportant. But in the last six months, I think has shown the world that this is not a scientific discussion anymore. This is one of economics, sociopolitics, everything else. So our misperception about viruses has been in debate in the scientific environment for well over you know 150 years. But the last ten years have been very interesting in that debate, and that we're starting to really realize we miscategorize these things, and the science is changing. But in general, it's going to take 20 to 30 years before you really start to see a paradigm shift to when it becomes you know, the common narrative. So we're somewhere 5 to 10 years into this 30-year journey into making this a common narrative. But right now, we have the opposite narrative, which is these things are attacking us and they're, they're the villains. So what I'm about to say is important uh, for all of us, even though it may sound like minutia of, of biology here, virus is not alive and that's a super important realization because for the last 10 to 15 years the consumer is starting to get buried under you know a deluge of information about the microbiome and so you you can now pick up dove soap and it says it's friendly to the microbiome is their new tagline soap isn't that, that's not how soap works it's not friendly to the microbiome but nonetheless it's become such a prevalent catch term that we see soap companies needing to talk about the microbiome the problem with this kind of vague notion of the microbiome is it allows the the scientific community or the pharmaceutical community or the regulatory communities to, to put all of the fear of all of the history of infectious disease and history onto these things that we call viruses. And that's a huge mistake scientifically. It's it's really goes against all of the science currently to be able to do that. But I just want to break it down for the consumer to understand that viruses are not alive. These are genetic packets of information that are targeted towards specific uh, locations. And so the... Any living life form, the majority of which is not human, obviously. In fact, it's not even multicellular. The majority of life on earth is singular cellular. So you've got single cell forms of of fungi in the form of yeast or uh, hyphae or multi hyphae. And then you get into the weird multicellular things like mycelium of the soils. And then you get into the mushroom. And then you get, you know, this weird new thing that's developed between a mushroom and a plant called the mycorrhizae and the mycorrhizae are these a bizarre structure that is almost like quantum physics in motion in the way that is able to generate energy from soil and passage it into plants and the mycorrhizae is you know this other huge life form and then of course the bacteria that are riding in all of those different ecosystems is just you know boggles the mind and its complexity the species diversity is just mind blowing. We're at at least three and a half million, but most of us are starting to realize we're probably closer to 5 million species of fungi. Five million species, like, you know, can you, you think about all of the other life forms on earth and then the fungi have five million species, you know? And so it's just such vast information. And all of these are able to produce genomic information that we would call viruses. Bacteriophage are at least half of the viruses in the atmosphere that we are breathing all the time. And so bacteriophage are a virus that's secreted by a bacteria or a protozoa or the ancient bacteria called archaea. And so we have this teeming genomic life coming out of the microbiome in the form of genetic information. And it's not alive. I, I misspoke there. So this teeming you know, milieu of genetic information spewing out of the microbiome in all of its genomic variability. And that genomic stew is certainly vast in number. We got 10 to the 31 viruses in the air around us. There's another 10 to the 30 viruses in the soil, another 10 to the 31 viruses in ocean water.
0: Can you break... I think many people, myself included, just are mathematically challenged by a logarithmic <laughs> numbers like that yeah just for per- perspective is there a way you can state that 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 it gives us the magnitude yeah um i mean the answer is no 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 human <laughs> brain can write, wrap their
1: head around 10 to the 31 but the but to try to get out that 10 to the 31 is 10 million times more than all of the stars in the universe so picture billions of galaxies each with billions of stars Multiply that out in your head it 's out into the expanse as far as any telescope has ever seen, all of those stars, and you now you need to do ten million of those universes before you reach ten to the thirty one
0: okay, okay that
1: helps, and so now you 're ten to the thirty one of everything that the hubble t- telescope's ever seen and beyond, you know so It's literally more vast than really any other number. You know, up there are things like, you know, it exceeds the number of grains of sand on beaches of the world, things like this. You know, you're, you're in this vast, vast, you know, milieu such that there's no breath you take that doesn't have virus in it. And we can show this just in a single system of an infant. An infant that's just born seven days ago has 10 to the 8th, which is 100 million different viruses in its stool seven days in. Wow. That infant doesn't have the ability to make antibodies. And so this whole story that antibodies are needed to be in relationship or protection against viruses is completely false. We have a really hard time talking about that in science because we've spent 50 years telling everybody that we're going to go and vaccinate them or do something else to create antibodies to protect them from these things. But we have very clear evidence sitting in front of us in just a single infant living before us taking breath and as in, in a joyful, healthy state at seven days of age that cannot make any antibodies to the, those pathogens. And everybody says, well, they get that from mom through the breast milk or something like that. Well, you know, you go to China, you got 70% of kids on formula. They never see mom's breast milk. United States we're in that 40 to 50, 60% range. And then you think, well, some of them, you know, we get it from mom to the vaginal delivery and there's all these other theories of how it goes. But unfortunately, 50% of children born in China are now born by C-section. Some 32 to 40% wow. of Americans are wow, born by that's C-section. Crazy. And so we are born sterile and yet we don't stay sterile long. We don't have an immune system from mom because we disrupted mom's immune system at so many different levels. And yet these babies aren't dying of invasive viral infection on day seven. And so we have very good scientific evidence that we are playing on a two-dimensional chessboard with old science that doesn't hold up to even these basic observations anymore. HIV doesn't directly cause AIDS. HIV is always present in the condition that we call AIDS, but doesn't cause it. It is part of the disruption. Its presence is a sign of disruption of our relationship with the virome. And that we should come back to as a relationship there. But what is a virus? It's a non-living package of information of DNA that's put out into the atmosphere around us or into the water system or soil systems from the microbes. And then multicellular life gets to produce those as well. And so if a mammal will grab one of those genetic updates, and that's the purpose of the virus, that's important. And science has been arguing for years now whether the viruses were the first thing or was bacteria the first thing, You know that really life on earth, how did it form? And in, interestingly, they show up at almost exactly the same moment in the fossil record. So around 3.5, 3.7 billion years ago, we see bacteria evidence for bacteria and viruses in the fossil record keep that in mind we we can have a fossil record of a virus that's three billion years old and here you know we have regulatory science groups telling us don't worry about the virus if it's been more than 14 days like (laughs) billions of years billions of years in nature okay and so that's a a profound observation long lifespan to viruses and they've been here long before we ever showed up and in fact, we could not have showed up without the viruses. The virus's purpose is to swap genetic information quickly across species. In, inside of species is actually, you don't even need a virus. The bacteria and archaea, which were the kind of predecessors to the more complex modern bacteria, archaea starting in you know, three and a half billion years ago, learned how to swap genetic information between friends, if you will, of the same generation very quickly. So instead of genetically passing down information through a lineage of reproduction they learned how to do what's called horizontal gene transfer and they started passing genetic information all over the place and this can be seen in a modern hospital system with antibiotic resistance and so if there's a bacteria within the hospital that suddenly develops an adaptation that allows it to resist the function of an antibiotic that's in the environment it can now start passing that genetic adaptation to all of its all of its friends nearby. If it wants to go trans-species with that, it needs to use a virus. So then a bacteriophage is produced and it will target that genetic update or that genetic opportunity for adaptation and variability out into the environment. And it will tag it to where it intends it. It will put surface proteins that it it will be picked up by a specific other species by a specific other receptor. In the case of coronavirus, we will produce the common cold out of the coronavirus all the time. And coronavirus targets a very specific receptor within our lungs and with our vascular tree and beyond, and it's called the ACE2 receptor. And so the ACE2 receptor is normally expressed on all these tissues and the virus is produced in an envelope that's tagged with an ACE2 antigen so that it will bind to that receptor and be delivered specifically into our lung and vascular system beyond to update the genetics of that individual. And so if it was a You know, malicious act. Then no species would want to take that up and and replicate it. So we've developed, and the most regulated process that's ever been studied, really at the genetic level, happens in these ribosomal RNA. And so the RNA is what will transcribe the ribosome is what will transcribe the RNA into a protein and then make it functional. The, the the virus is not only not alive it's not functional until it's taken up by its host so let's picture you know somebody in china who uh, starts to breathe in you know particles of coronavirus finds a necessity for creating an immune response in its body or updating a genetic pathway within the red blood cell or the hemoglobin protein or any number of processes and they shift that You know, they take that up, and in their need for that virus, they start producing more of it. And so they start exuding it throughout their whole body, and then they'll send it out specifically tagged for other mammals. And so mammals start taking up this virus all over the place and will adapt to that very quickly. As we've seen with this current, you know, corona outbreak, most people who are exposed to that virus and will have, you know, an immune response to it, they never recognize any illness. You know, most of them are asymptomatic. Another significant portion are mildly symptomatic. They have a few days of fatigue and headache, and then it's gone. Then a few will have headache, fatigue, cough, some shortness of breath, and then a very, very few will actually present with you know really acute illness. What's happening in all of those individuals that are breathing that thing in and never become symptomatic is this extraordinarily regulated process where the RNA will the, the virus getting into the body, each cell will decide whether it's going to make that the proteins from that virus or not. And it's going to decide whether it's going to integrate that, that genetic information into our genome, which gets really interesting that we could start, you know, passing this genetic information within a single within a single generation to each other, you know, or within our body at least, to other liver cells or other lung cells or whatever it is through horizontal gene transfer and other things. And so we can quickly move these genes around the body to where they're most needed. Now, occasionally... These will lead to such an important adaptation that they get recorded in the, the DNA of our reproductive cells. So the sperm or the ovum can take in new genetic information and pass this on a famous update that I can point to is the iPhone gene got inserted in my children's generation. I still don't know how to use an iPhone, but they were born knowing how to use that thing. So <laughs> there was some genetic update that happened that allowed this you know, moment to happen and suddenly everybody knew how to use an iPhone. And so this you know, adaptation of human behavior actually can be seen down at the genetic level through the whole history of mammals. And so the first mammalian birth, it turns out, could not have actually happened without a retrovirus. And so a retrovirus got inserted into the journey towards mammal millions of years ago. And this, this RNA virus allows for a protein to be produced that allows the, the transcription device for the genome to be able to jump across bumper blocks. My liver cells always have to make liver cells because of the bumper blocks that hold the transcription me- uh, mechanism in place this RNA virus suddenly allowed you know, that, that to move. And we started to, at that moment, develop the ability for stem cells. And so stem cells led to this huge pluripotent capacity for regeneration and repair. So the first stem cells are due to a retrovirus actually, like HIV, getting adapted, not just into single cells in the organism, but actually into our reproductive cells at that point. But interestingly, the placenta being necessary for that first mammalian birth also needed an RNA virus to make it possible for its, its formation. And so these are just two of, of, you know, thousands and thousands of examples of viruses that built us. And without them, we would have never developed the biology of what we think of as human today. We now know that over 50 percent of the 20,000 genes that are we call human, are inserted, we've been able to map them directly back to insertion from viral genome. So 50% of the human DNA is the result of direct manipulation or insertion of viral intelligence. And we have good evidence that the viruses, as this mechanism of adaptation, is always pushing for one thing, which is biodiversity, and at the same time, somehow an increase in consciousness. And I would argue that based on some really bizarre things that happen when we go extinct on this planet. And so extinction events on planet Earth have happened five times. We're in the middle of our sixth great extinction here. And after each great extinction, something amazing happens that instead of the, the Earth like struggling to get back to its previous normal, it for some reason does life better the next time around. It does it faster. It does it through more biodiversity. And there's always this higher level of intelligence seemingly in, or at least a capacity for it within the biology on Earth. Now that gets us back to how does a virus get produced in the first place? Why would an organism, a bacteria, or a human produce a virus? And the answer is stress. If all is well, then there's no reason for us to send out new genetic adaptation. But if things are going bad and the environment's toxic because there's too many volcanoes that went off, or there's a huge cataclysmic asteroid that hits 55 million years ago, or whatever it is, Right now, there's so much chemical being dumped into the planet that's killing the entire microbiome. And so the amount of stress in a pig facility, for example, you know, in a pork facility, is is just astronomical. You can't even calculate the level of extinction stress in, in a pig farm. And so that level of extinction stress leads to this massive explosion of viromic communication because all of the organisms in there, billions of bacteria, billions of fungi billions of cells of pigs or chickens or humans being raised in these toxic environments are desperately looking for the survival benefit to get them out of the extinction event or if extinction is inevitable to leave a record of life
0: that would allow life to come back more resilient wow. and beautiful that's some star trek shit right there <laughs> that's wild and when you when you speak of the uh, you know a, a farm i'm because I, I know you do work with farmers and that's part of your mission. I mean, we're talking about, um, in that, and I want to back up even further, but just on top of mine, we're talking about a classical factory farm that is just based on output and has nothing to do with considering the environment or the animals or the finished product and its effect on people, right? Yeah. I mean, we can
1: see the stress at almost in any farm now, unfortunately, just because the environment's become so toxic. Mm-hmm. So we have... You know, the most ubiquitous herbicide on the planet is now Roundup, or the active ingredient Roundup, which is glyphosate. And that's now the active ingredient in almost every weed killer on the market worldwide. We we are using somewhere around four, four and a half billion pounds a year of this chemical, and we're pouring it right into our soil. And it functions as an antibiotic, and it's water-soluble. And so this gets carried into the groundwater. It gets put into our fossil aquifers that are contaminated now. gets put into our river systems and ultimately into our oceans. And in that process, it actually evaporates. A large amount of that water goes into the air. And so we're breathing Roundup. 75% of the air samples taken in the United States are now contaminated with Roundup. So that then goes into our clouds, consolidates, and rains back down. 75% of our rainfall is contaminated with Roundup. And so we are breathing it. We're drinking it. It's raining on us. And so... That's why I point that out, is because you ask him, well, is this just factory farms? Unfortunately, our most organic, you know, grass raised, finished animal, or you know, the organic produce, you know, being grown down the down the road is being rained on or be watered by by water that's not just contaminated with Roundup, but you know 164 other herbicides, pesticides, and and agricultural chemicals, compounded with another you know 160 different chemicals from the from the cosmetics industry, another 120 chemicals from the the uh, you know washing of clothes. And, you know, just the amount of apparel you know chemical ooze is disgusting the amount of that that ends up in our bloodstream is disgusting you go do yoga in your stretch yoga pants and you don't know you're absorbing all these microplastics in your bloodstream but it's inevitable you have you, you, you absorb them in, into your uh, through your skin the microplastics especially as the pants age and so wow. when you develop you know any any plastic based clothing that has you know that petroleum basin, and it, it's going to be friable. And if you look under an electron microscope at the masks everybody's wearing right now, those those uh, melt-blown plastic mesh that's inside that mask to create the filter, is this nanofiber plastic that looks a lot like what you would find in apparel, but disorganized apparel has its appearance because of its organized you know, uh, production of it. In melt-blown plastic you know, mask, you're, you're blowing it almost at random against a spinning screen to create that, that random mesh down at the nano. But it, in the end, you've got these microfilaments of plastic that as they flex, and especially if they heat up by the heat of your breath in the case of a mask or the sweat on your skin through yoga, they become friable. And so the, these little microplastic nanoparticles are breaking off your clothing all the time. And the skin is relatively good at being a barrier to the outside world until ironically it's exposed to things like roundup, which break down our barriers of our skin and <laughs> our gut. And so now we're drinking oh, microplastics, man. we're eating microplastics and these are all endocrine disruptors, you know? And so downstream of glyphosate, which is, you know, the, I would say the most toxic chemical on the planet for certainly it's ubiquitous nature, but also because of what it does. It, it it's, function at the biologic level of humans or animals that are consuming it is that it breaks apart our barriers. And so it breaks apart the gut barrier, the vascular barrier, the, the blood brain barrier, the kidney tubules. So we are become sieves or, or sponges for toxin and we lose the ability to excrete those toxins through our kidneys or through our sweat or otherwise. And so through the breakdown of these barriers, we become these sponges for all the toxins. So I, I see glyphosate as the gatekeeper. I was super excited to see the Minister of, of uh, the Environment of Mexico come out about two weeks ago now to announce that Mexico is banning Glyphosate and Roundup in Mexico by 2023. Really? And so wow. super progressive. Um, he's, he's matching France's goal. France wants to get it out of their country by 2023. There's this misperception that Europe doesn't use Roundup. That's not true. All the European countries have. Um, Germany is trying to get 2025 to be their, their you know, organic target and all of this. But it looks like Russia is going to probably be the first country there way ahead of everybody. <laughs> so funny. Yeah. I heard
0: that. And it's yes. like we think of Russia as this totalitarian, archaic right. culture and government. And then now they're becoming the leaders of liberty. It's just bizarre. Everything's backwards. Well, they're the leaders of technology. You right? Know, isn't right. it
1: ironic that no president over the last three presidents has mentioned that we outsource our entire space program to Russia? Really? And that's where we launch all of our astronauts from. This is where we train all of our astronauts ever since what? we shut down the shuttle program. And nobody knows that. And so it just drives me crazy. That's that crazy. here These presidents are vilifying the Russians while they've spent literally, I think it's, the last number I saw was like $15 billion building Space City outside of Moscow. The US has spent that kind of money in Russia because they have the best engineers and they have the best mathematicians and they're the best space program in the world. And so this rise of Elon Musk and SpaceX and all that was the only answer we had, the reason why that was allowed to happen, why NASA backed off and, and started inviting the public sector into this thing and giving stimulus. The government started giving stimulus and creating space for private sector is because they couldn't do it themselves. They don't have the engineering prowess of the Russians. And so, you know, just across all of these scenes, I just think there's this hubris of Americana that's keeping us from participating in the future. Right. And we're locked in a past and nowhere is that more clear than what's happening in the pandemic. We're controlling the global narrative with science that's literally 30 to 150 years old.
0: (laughs) Well, I want to delve deeper into that. And I I really want to get into the roundup um, issue too, because I know you're such an advocate for that. But before I go back, I want to circle back to the virus issue a little bit, but I have one question about the, uh, the roundup thing. So France is going for this initiative to ban it. Mexico's following suit. Uh, Russia as well, I'm assuming that would be inclusive also of the Bayer kind of like, re what was it called? Like the Liberty Spray or something? <laughs> Liberty Link. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's like the rebranding of it. Is it not? No, it's not. Actually,
1: it's scarier than that. It's, it's worse. It's worse. God damn it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just when you thought you heard the bad news from me, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll up the ante on you. Um, but uh, yeah, so Liberty Link, I think is why Bayer, you know, and this is total supposition here, but why did Bayer come along to buy Monsanto when Monsanto was... Really, really on a catastrophic downfall of of good PR. <laughs> they were had already been vilified by the American public. They were, you know, being you know sued beyond you know their capacity. You know all of this, and so the the U.S. court system had upheld those blocks on those those court cases for decades. You know, yeah, basically continuing to quote Monsanto's own science to say no, this is all BS. This is BS. And then, of course, right at the moment they finally sell, sell to Bayer, the U.S. court system lots off the brakes, and we see the first court case finally go to a jury. No judge before that moment had allowed this to go to a jury. And, of course, the jury you know, settled that $250 million case for the complainant, which nobody was told. But 30 days later, that judge downgraded that $250 million to $30 million Without telling anybody, just made a, a unilateral decision as a judge that he could you know, two hundred fifty million is unreasonable and made it a $30 million oh my god uh, settlement. And so you know it's it's this kind of you know public appear, you know trauma though that this company then goes and buys Monsanto. So why would they do that? So two years before they go to buy Monsanto, they finally get approval for Liberty Link, which is their new GMO. Uh, chemical and crop. And so they got approval from the EU and the USDA, Canadian regulators and Australian regulators uh, over a five-year effort to, to get this new genetic modification into the crops. And so if you remember GMO didn't used to be called GMO, it used to just be called Roundup Ready crops Um, because nobody in 1996 really knew what genetic modification was. That wasn't part of our public lexicon, but Roundup Ready was, easy for people to understand because our homeowners by 1996 were all spraying Roundup in their backyards and everything else. And to have plants that would be resistant to that uh, would be really beneficial for farmers. So they created the Roundup resistance, uh, genetically modified crops with corn, soybean, and now there's over you know 30 or 40 species of plants, including things like petunias and roses have been genetically modified to handle Roundup now. So, Dude, know,
0: I was gonna, side note real quick, I gotta interrupt. I yeah. was gonna ask you about that. I've always wondered if when you go to a florist and buy flowers, if when you're smelling them, if you're inhaling Roundup, do you think that's likely? Oh yeah, you're touching it. You're absorbing it. You're breathing. it. Ah, yeah,
1: brutal. All right, yeah. yeah, and not just roundup. Obviously, there's there's so many chemicals used on roses. They're they're easily you know the mo- one of the most toxic you know flowers you can touch. So okay. if you really so.
0: love someone, get get them some wildflowers. <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. All right, so back to the yeah. the, the liberty. Well, well, actually, on that,
1: yeah, I, I just want to give a shout out to. Um, Texas Children's Hospital invited me down there um, in Houston last year to just tour their grounds. And it turns out it was none of their doctors. It was not their oncology ward. It was none of the people that you would think would be interested in you know, having a former cancer research guy come in, it was their landscapers. One of their head landscaper had heard one of my talks and decided it realized, you know, overnight that he was delivering Roundup into every hospital room in the country because he had been a part of the think tank that had developed uh, for Texas Children's Hospital and Texas Hospital Houston, University of Texas Houston, uh, the policy that every room would be delivered a fresh rose every day. And he was. It was heralded through everybody. Like, what a cool thing to do for every patient in the midst of chemo and everything else to give them all a fresh rose every day. And he realized he was delivering fresh glyphosate roundup, you know, into every room every day. Oh, brutal. Um, because it's not just covering the plant. Remember, it's absorbed up into the water structure of the plant. You know, so it's it's like ever present in that thing. You can't rinse off the roundup. And so, in that, he decided he was going to, you know, work with his crew. And over the last, you know, like, I think it only took them two years, but there's 610, you know, acres of their property around their hospital system is now 99% glyphosate free, including their rose gardens and things like that. Oh, and that's so, cool. I think it's really neat that our farmers and our landscapers can be decades ahead of our medical scientists and doctors in recognizing we should not have chemicals in our environment. We should not have chemicals around humans that are sick. And so how, they're that, how that's an easy jump for them and such a difficult jump for my colleagues and I to make that transition, I don't understand. I don't know what it is, what kind of brainwashing it is, or what we're afraid of. What are we afraid of to acknowledge that toxins in our environment are probably causing sickness, i 'm not sure what the resistance is entirely, um, but I think there's a fear that we don 't know and and that's probably i guess as I think about it just in real time here, this probably needs to be corrected later but In real time, when you're a physician and you're asked to be at the bedside and make life and death decisions and what feels like life and death decisions anyways, there's a high level of sense of responsibility there. And if you start to acknowledge that, you know, our current narrative on sicknesses come from viruses and bacteria, if that's not true, then I don't know what's true. And that's going to make me really insecure at the bedside. And so that's maybe why we retract from new information is we need to feel really confident that we know the right paradigm because we have to go and make these split-second decisions that could mean life or death for our patients. And then we have to acknowledge when we start to see, and I had to go on this journey myself, when I started to realize that you know I had young people who had committed suicide under my care and things like that, there had been loss of life due to the, the lack of good tools and the lack of holistic understanding I had of those patients and the lack of time I had to listen to those patients. And so those things weigh on you as a, as a human being when you're like, man, I just don't have the right toolbox. And yet I'm being put in this environment of life and death decisions and people are dying. And if I knew better, then maybe they wouldn't die in the same way or maybe they'd live longer, healthier lives. It's a lot to put on an individual. And so maybe we just need to stop for a moment and just write a huge permission slip to all the physicians, scientists, nurses, everybody else working right now as we see this COVID thing sweep through it and everything else it's okay that we're screwing this up because we've been screwing it up forever. Like this is not new mess up. Like right. we, have not, we have a long history of science being a process, not a data bank. Science isn't like a the truth. Science is literally just a process and it's kicking out new information all the time as it marches through space and time. And we do our best as scientists and physicians to react to that information. But like I said earlier, we know it takes 20 to 30 years before we see a cohesive new paradigm find in the science realm basic science and beyond for that to trickle into real you know decisive change at the clinical level 20 30 years minimum but now we're talking about something that's not just like stepwise progress we haven't seen this big of a scientific disruption since I'd say the 1600s when we found out the planet was not at the center of the universe you know when, with the invention of the telescope we suddenly found out the universe was spinning around uh, or we were spinning around in a universe rather than it you know, circling us as the center of the universe. In the same way, we're suddenly looking through our microscopes now realizing, oh my gosh, the human cell is not at the center of life of the human. If we're not at the center of life of human, what is? And the answer is the microbiome is at the center of life of human. Mm-hmm. And if we start to deplete that microbiome, human life starts to deteriorate. And so does earthworm. Earthworm is not at the center of earthworm life. The microbiome is. And what is the microbiome? The microbiome is an ecosystem of tens of thousands, if not millions of species that are intercommunicating at any given moment to decide how to make hyperintelligence happen. So, this really complex ecosystem that you start to elicit consciousness. And we can see the destruction of consciousness by something as simple as an antibiotic. One course of antibiotics... Will, will cause an increase in major depression over the next 12 months of 17%, increase in anxiety by 24%. If you have two courses of antibiotics, I would in- increase your, your risk of major depression by, 40, by 44% and your risk of a generalized anxiety disorder by 52%. And so just with a simple course of three days for sinusitis, I can change your level of mood stability and your sense of connection to self and depression being that classic disconnect from self is listed by a simple antibiotic, a you know, hmm. few days of antibiotic. And so when I say human's not at the center of human, it's quite literal. We cannot have even our connection to our sense of self without the microbiome.
0: Wow. Damn. So I'm still curious with the Russia, Mexico, and France and this Liberty Link, are they also going to block that because it is as bad, if not worse, as a chemical to have in the environment? Or are they just like, it's not Roundup, so it's okay? This is why I think Russia is
1: kind of ahead of the curve. (laughs) Russia is really going for for being the first organic country. And so that means they're going to have no small chemical uh, molecules allowed. So that would rule out Liberty Link, Atrazine, 2,4-D, 24Ds, like atrazine and 24D, are the most used chemicals in the U.S. now because Roundup is failing us. Mm. We've sprayed so much Roundup that we're now causing that gene transfer that I talked about earlier, and the right. plants are literally horizontally passing gene transfer for resistance to Roundup now. And so here we genetically modified for Roundup ready crops to be re- resist that Roundup or to be uh, resistant to the Roundup. And now that those plants have taken that genetic information. And started to pass it horizontally to the weeds and the rest. And oh, so we wow. have this, you know, so extraordinary everything's horizontal turning roundup ready, basically. We're, yeah. Oh, that's and in three or five crazy. more generations, we might have humans, if we're still alive, to that are Roundup ready. You know, We might be able to genetically adapt to Roundup. It's possible. Right. Um, you know, it, it'd be tricky because we're going to have to fix a lot of things because we, we we don't actually have the machinery that Roundup was supposed to attack. So therefore, it's going to be hard for us to adapt because most of the viromic information or genetic information that's coming for adaptation that's allowing plants to adapt around something called the shikimate pathway. It's an enzyme pathway that plants and fungi have. We unfortunately don't have that pathway. And so we can't actually even do the work of that pathway. And so whatever adaptation we would have to find to be Roundup ready is not going to be the same as the plant. So it would take a lot of viromic information. We're going to have to produce a lot of virus before we find you know, a genetic adaptation to all of these chemicals, glyphosate and 240 d and atrazine are interesting. 240 d is another, you know, 2,4-D is the racemic or, the, or it's the mirror image of Agent Orange. And so we're (laughs) spraying our crops now with Agent Orange, which is not very different than glyphosate because both are organophosphate molecules. And so, but 2,4 D is really the the same molecule as Agent Orange, just flipped over. But, you know, glyphosate being the most ubiquitous Agent Orange, you know, organophosphate like molecule, all of these are disrupting the ability of these, these soil organisms, plant organisms to make the essential amino acids which again, we can't make because we don't have that shikimate enzyme pathway. So we call them the essential amino acids because those nine amino acids we have to get from our food or from our gut flora. If they can't make it for us, we'll never get it and we'll start misspelling proteins. There's only 22 amino acids, which is a very small alphabet to build 280,000 different proteins that the body needs to produce in a healthy human body. So there's 22 letters of the alphabet of those amino acids that can be rearranged to spell these different proteins. Nine of those are the essential amino acids and a significant you know, portion of those essential amino acids are made by that shikimate pathway. And so Monsanto has been getting away and now all the chemical companies in the US make that chemical, by the way, you know, Dow and you know, certainly 3M and you know, all those chemical companies are making some form of glyphosate you know, compounds out there. And so, glyphosate, you know, being that disruptor of the shikimate pathway, and now you know every weed killer in the world doing this, we're starting to over the last thirty years build an entire soil system and food system that is deleted of a few letters of the alphabet. And those alphabets that that are really functioning as the vowels that show up in almost every single protein are those essential amino acids. So. Three of those are, are phenylalanine, tryptophan, and tyrosine. And these are made by the shikimate pathway that's blocked by Roundup. So imagine taking three of the vowels out of the alphabet <laughs> and what would happen to the spelling of the English language. You know? right. And so we've got you know, about the same number of letters, a few more letters in the alphabet, but then you have you know, these five critical vowels. And if you start deleting those vowels, you literally will start miss, misspelling every protein. And when you misspell a protein, you decrease its function or you completely eliminate its function. But in most cases, I think it's you know just uh, a deformed protein and so it loses its, its functionality. And so we can have a lot of uh, misspellings and still tolerate that to some degree as far as building a baby, but their resilience becomes deficient because they can't detox at the same rate. They can't, you know, uh, produce metabolism and energy for repair and regeneration of the same right and all these things so in this very insidious way we had a, a chemical that you know the tagline was it safer than water and when it, they were asked why is it safer than water it was because humans don't have the shikimate pathway and it poisons the shikimate pathway well that, that was short-sighted thinking that it only did one thing yeah you know? oh, but more than that isn't that short-sighted that the epa never asked well what does the shikimate pathway do and <laughs> what's going to happen if we block the shikimate pathway in soil systems and plant systems? Oh, by the way, you're going to start to have fetuses that misspell all the proteins in there. And of course, that's tragically what we're seeing is our children are now born aged. They are born with an old genomics. And so they start aging quicker. They start developing diseases that we didn't see until our 80s. By the end time they're five or eight years old. And so we've got this exponential rate of aging at the cell, this lack of repair. Happening, And I believe it has a lot to do with this epigenetic patterning of a lack of amino acids to begin with and a stress signal increasingly coming out. And when we do rodent studies with this, we just presented this data again to the EPA. There's three great studies that have been done showing generational effect of, of glyphosate in rodents. And what you see is in the first generation where you expose the, 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 the grandmother in this case, now, uh, mouse one, there's no change in lifespan. She has normal pups. She has no diabetes or cancer. Everything looks good. That second generation of pups, however, very early on in life, start to have metabolic dysfunction. They develop obesity. They develop dysfunction of the immune system. Start to really show some major stress. The third generation, tragically, is you know born with massive birth defects, stillborn or cancers early on. The scary thing is we have not seen the third generation of Roundup children yet. And so we can show that in rodents, we're probably looking at second generation right now. So the children that are now exhibiting in the United States in our recent Medicaid surveys were showing that 52% of American children have some sort of chronic disorder or disease compared to 1.2% in 1960s. So 52% of children in, in generation two I either have allergy to their, the air they breathe, they have allergy to the food they try to eat. They can't breathe, they can't eat without being overreactive. That's not good. You mentioned Star Trek earlier and it always comes to mind when we get to this part of the conversation because I have this like distinct memory of like this almost like exhilarating goosebump moment when Spock, you know, wires back into the Enterprise and says, good news, this can sustain life. This planet is getting to the point where Spock would show up and be like, bad news, can't sustain life. <laughs> right. You know, We're losing the right. very fundamentals of biology because it can't produce amino acids for humans to develop in. We're literally at that tipping point, and that's why great extinction events happen on the planet. The five great extinction events weren't because the asteroid hit all the animals. It's because there was enough of a death of topsoil that we lost the, the generative effect of the microbiome, and we couldn't make the amino acid pool and the intelligence of nature really you know exert itself, and so we lose that fundamentals, and so we're at this you know scary tipping point and in the next you know ten, 20 years, we're going to see that third generation of roundup babies born. We have no idea how bad this thing gets. Currently, in second generation roundup, we're looking at you know one in somewhere between one in 25 and one in thirty five children with autism spectrum disorder one in 5,000 in 1975, right before we debuted Roundup. And so we've gone from one in 5,000 to one in 20. And we're on the steepest climb in that trajectory of autism spectrum disorder has been from 2012 to present. On our current trajectory, even if we don't have a worse scenario in the third generation of Roundup kids, we could hit one in three children with an autism spectrum disorder in the United States by 2035. So we're 15 years away from really the elimination of a generation from productivity as a nation. So if you want to zoom back from the the humanitarian crisis there, the the health crisis, and just look at it as just pure economic situation, we collapse as an empire at that moment. There is no economy on the world that can support one in three children with autism. At the same time, we're supporting this rise in cancer to the point of 80% of adults with cancer. That is fiscally insoluble. And so it doesn't take imagination anymore. We can simply say these are the, the steps that are happening. And then a lot of people you know, challenge me like, Zach, why do you just keep marching around telling people they're going to go extinct? Like that's a bad intro line because nobody believes that. And, and of course we can't believe that because we look around and there's 7.8 billion people. So how could we possibly go extinct? Especially because you keep saying it's like 60 or 80 years away. Don't say that because... You don't know. and I, Well, I don't know, but I can certainly show you the line of how we get there. <laughs> and that line is very short. Like it started just in the 1970s. And if you look from the 1970s, again, the debut of glyphosate being 1974, 76, debuted in 74, but didn't really get sprayed extensively in the US and Canada until 76. So 1975 is like kind of one of my metric dates of like okay this is kind of pre glyphosate. You know, at that moment the average sperm count in all Western nations on average was around 100 you know, 100 million sperm per uh, deciliter or microliter. And so it, you then fast forward through that that you know first and then maybe the second generation of males now coming out under glyphosate area and we're down to 48. So we've had You know, 52% decline in sperm counts, not just in the U.S., but in all Western nations over that short period of time. We now have one in three males with sperm counts in the infertility range in all Western nations. One in three males infertile by sperm count in Western nations across the world. When was the last time you saw a politician concerned about that? When did that come up on the radar screen of public health? I can't believe that we just pause the entire economic force of the world over some story of a vilified virus and not over the story of we're going extinct and one in three males is already infertile and <laughs> in another 40 years, we aren't going to be able to produce a baby. Right. Like that amazes me that we are that short-sighted that we can't even look forward 20 years. Like I say, I show you the, the chart for autism per year and scientists will say, well, we're over-diagnosing it. We've changed the diagnosis and they come up with all these rationalizations instead of coming to terms with, we might be doing that. It is quite possible that we are doing this to ourselves and we should do something about it, but we don't. We just keep kicking the can down the road because we can't even look forward 15 years and agree, let alone 40 years and agree. The Only thing that brought the world to an end was something that was threatening our life right now. They said, this could kill millions of people tomorrow. That seems to be within our, within our timeline of imagination to cause a transformative event.
0: We'll be right back at you after this brief but important announcement. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you've definitely heard me talk about SirThrival.com. And you've also heard from our fantastic multi-visit guest, Daniel Vitalis, the founder of that company. I'd like to talk to you today about one of their fantastic newer products called CBD3. It's a tri-hemp blend. Now, you probably already know what CBD is, but don't be fooled by the gas station versions with questionable source ingredients. A lot of the CBD on the market is honestly just crap. The cool thing about the SirThrival.com CBD3 product is it comes in adult version as well as pet version. So for the past month or so, I've been giving it to my dog twice a day. She laps it up like it's ice cream. It's incredible, and I know that it's so good for her. The CBD three product is packaged in a beautiful milk glass bottle. It comes in three different strengths and two flavors. There's a mint and a natural. It's heat resistant. It's high quality organically grown hemp, which is really important. The CBD-3 also has better bioavailability and faster onset of action with a lower dosage. It's all grown and produced in the USA. Of course, it's non-GMO, pesticide, and herbicide-free. And they use a unique patented technology that protects their superior delivery system. The fact is, when you take a lot of CBD products, you don't really absorb it. That's why many people go like, ah, what's the big deal? I don't get CBD. That's why. They've also created the product to have a superior shelf life, which means the product is stable and potent, even at extremely high and low temperatures. And it doesn't degrade in your stomach when you swallow it because of its liposomal delivery system. It's also tested for 0% THC for those that are concerned with that. They use a proprietary three-stage process for maximum absorption. They use a CBD isolate that's 10 to 20 nanometers. Regular CBD is up to 600 nanometers in size, by the way. This CBD will be delivered into the bloodstream first Stage two is a broad-spectrum CBD that's 25 to 50 nanometers, making it the second constituent to enter the blood plasma. Stage three is a classic broad-spectrum CBD that will last to be absorbed. So this three-stage process is really incredible and creates a natural time-release effect in the body with maximum absorption and benefit. So you can absorb this in as little as 30 minutes and it will last up to 24 hours. So because of its superior absorption, a much smaller dose can yield more effective results, making Sir Thrival's CBD-3 hemp extract a healthier, more efficient, and definitely more economical choice. They've done tons of tests proving absorption, bioavailability, heat and cold stability, and long-term shelf stability, and you won't find a more comprehensive CBD product on the market. So if you want to check it out, which I highly suggest you do, get over to surthrival.com. That's S-U-R-T-H-R-I-V-A-L, like survive and thrive, surthrival.com. The discount code there is STYLE10, which saves you 10% off. That's surthrival.com, and the code is STYLE10. And now, back to the interview. Well, it's interesting, too, how, you know, so much of this seems to be based on the Ferguson um, computer projection model that is just on its face, much more fallible than everything you just said. You know what I mean? It's like, you just made a better case than that. And the whole world is like, oh, following that for someone that's been wrong um, multiple times before with such models. You know, I think this is the challenge for me as someone who wants to believe that at the core of all people is good, you know, and that some people have been misled through their own trauma, their own experience, their own limited perspective. But with information out there like this, it seems that it can't just be humanity's stupidity that's leading us so astray, that there seems to be um, you know, a systemic issue of incentivizing research decisions, laws, et cetera, for the purpose of greed and wealth. And when you look at the medical system, there's so many amazing MDs like you that are conscious and progressive and want change and really care about people and their patients and working steadfastly to bring about new ideas and perspectives. Yet, when we look at the COVID um, situation, I'm waiting for anyone in the mainstream narrative or medical profession to say, hey, let's talk about your immune system. It's like, I've never heard that word once you know, lifestyle, diet. I mean, just the basics. I mean, I'm, you know, pretty committed biohacker. So I probably take it to a level that many people don't feel the need to because it's just a hobby and a passion. But that's where I go, hmm, if where this all leads to is, well, we're close to the vaccine, but guess what? It's probably going to take more than one. And there's never a mention of anything holistic in fact the suppression of any information that is not supportive of that narrative that leads to that end of endless forced uh, inoculations etc it's hard for me to accept that there are that many people or perhaps those few people at the top controlling the information and controlling the directions of these systems that aren't just inherently evil you know it's just like it's it's maddening to me that this information, such as you're presenting, exists in the world. Yet here we go in many ways, just kind of like uh, oh, I'm going to listen to the TV and just do what it tells me. It's astonishing. It's what we need, though. You know, I think that's that's somehow the
1: silver lining, and this is where you know David Ike and I kind of differ. I guess is that you know, is this is there really a difference between? somebody at the CDC with an old paradigm narrative and my consciousness. The word my consciousness is not right. There is no my consciousness. There's only consciousness out there. And consciousness requires a perspective. Like you can't really have a conscious thought about anything unless you have a perspective from which to view that thing. Right. So consciousness only can, can be manifest in a biologic system if you will you have to come out of the vacuum space to develop a biologic perspective even to be able to have consciousness because it's just a perspective what is the consciousness of perspective of is a cooler concept well that's just knowledge if you will and so if if knowledge is the pool of reality that we really swim in and yet we're being called into a particle moment and so we emerge from the vacuum space of of singularity and we come into a quantum moment of a particle state. Every wave can be a wave or a particle. And so as you come into that particle state for you know, a billionth of a second and another billionth of a second, and every billionth of a second, you and I are updating that biologic, you know, solid particle state to become in agreement with our whole system. This is us, this is who I'm gonna be again this billionth of a second. And obviously when we're adaptive, if we can change every billionth of a second and then every every atom is, you know deconstructing and reconstructing every billionth of a second, why do we keep manifesting these chronic you know, declines or chronic disease? Why aren't we always ever present? It's because our consciousness has us limited to this you know, biologic particle state and we forget that we have, have any expanse outside of this particular moment. And so we develop our own story or narrative of who we are and what our limitations are and where we are, where we're going, why we're here, all of this. Yeah, the hospice moment where you're watching a patient die starts to break all of that apart. Where you start to realize there there is no evilness in the world. Like there, I've seen people that anybody would say that was a bad man. He was, you know, alcoholic, you know, strung out on drugs. You know, went through a, a, a sexual identity crisis when he was thirty. Um, so he got. You know, estranged by his family and his church and rejected by his entire community at that point. All of his substance abuse got worse, went through a couple of broken relationships uh, in his alternative lifestyle environment. He's going through this journey and then he's dying of AIDS in my ICU in 2002. Angry, pissed off individual. Like nobody wanted, none of the nurses wanted to be around him. He was just mad at everybody, angry as hell. And he was one of those three patients that died that night that we were able to resuscitate that I've spoken on other podcasts on. I, I don't think I've ever talked about just like how he was as a human being, but I think it was notable that he was unpleasant to be around. Nobody would have, including his own family or church, had, could have anything to do with him because he was so toxic. And so when I hear David Icke or anybody else saying, well, there's this cabal and there are these toxic people that just want to kill people. I'm like, okay, I've seen something of that. I've seen something of people that are just toxic. And yet he's one of the guys that you know, dies that night and we resuscitate him. He's, he's you know, legally dead for a few minutes while we injecting epinephrine and shocking his chest and doing all this traumatic stuff in the ICU. And he comes back in this like elated state. And he just encountered the other side and he's he immediately is nasty again. And he's like, why'd you bring me back? What are you doing? <laughs> and I'm like, come on, dude. I just like freaking saved your life. Like, you know, give me at least half a break here. Like, you're still nasty. I couldn't believe it. And he's like, and then his next sentence, he was the first one that died that night. And then a couple others died that night to kind of replicate the same story, which was what really was one of my big pivot points in my life that night. And he said, I just came back from a space where I was completely accepted. And I just started crying because I felt so so deeply convicted that I wasn't accepting that human being on any level the moment before he died. And in fact, I was kind of relieved he died. And I was kind of shocked and dismayed that he came back until he just explained that on the immediate other side of this particle moment, he was an entity that was completely understood, completely loved and in a white light state. A few hours later, I have a Baptist minister die, come back, tell me the same damn thing. And then this kid with this genetic dis- deformity, all this dies, you know, early the next morning and we resuscitate him. And he's you know, 18 year old kid with, you know, horrible genetic condition, all kinds of things against him. And he said the same thing. So by the end of that 24 hours, you know, I had to really start to <laughs> realize it doesn't matter what background or how nice a guy we are. And the kid was like the center of his high school. Like, you know, everybody loved him for his resilience. You know, he's just one of these kids who, despite all the cards that were stacked about it, he's still the kindest person and sweetest person. So there was hundreds of people, same thing with his minister, black Baptist minister, central Virginia, five generations of family and church members, you know, they just coming in, pouring into the ICUs. This dude over here, totally isolated, not one visitor. It was dying in in total loneliness and rejection. Split second later, billionth of a second later, completely accepted in white light, universally there. And so, is there a my consciousness? No, probably not. There's consciousness out there, and at times I'm tapping into it. Uh, certainly, this whole situation with you know what happened with. The death of George Floyd recently is just really a poignant example of, I thought I was a pretty conscious inf- individual, but there was enough that happened in those f- couple of days and weeks that followed to make me realize I had a perspective on this problem and it was very limited. I had blinders on and I thought I wasn't part of a systematic you know, epidemic of racism that's been around for hundreds of years. I thought we had solved that problem. I literally had kind of checked the box in my male brain of like, yeah, that's a thing of the past. To have to like reorient to like oh no this is a reality right now, and so these are these events that are unfolding in these recent months are giving us the opportunity to change our understanding of the knowingness, to change our perspective, to change our degree of consciousness towards all things, and if we could have the same compassion for life, i.e. the viruses that are trying so hard to create mm-hmm. biodiversity and you know adaptation to toxic environments. As we would to a George Floyd or his family, or to you know a young woman shot down by police in her own bed, you know it's just like it's too many tragic stories to really put your head around. And I think one of the most tragic ones is the vilification of biology. We cannot vilify a single bacteria anymore. We have too much science saying there is no such thing as a bad bacteria. It's the population and its completion that makes sure that all bacteria are serving in all of their right roles. In the same way, if we keep vilifying our Regulators, or the NIH, or the CDC, or Dr. Fauci, we do just as much harm from this alternative perspective if we're in the same, sitting on the same, you know, judgment seat with this vilification, demonizing of you know everything that David I talks about, and he has a really important role to play, and I really honor him for being a, a courageous alternative voice out there. <laughs> but he's in his messaging no less you know, vilifying than Bill Gates or whoever he's gnawing at, you know? It's like, you guys are literally the, 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 the two sides of the same coin, you know? So if you're going to sit there and espouse all of this, that you are the only one with the right perspective and you're the only one that knows the truth and everybody else is following a lie, then you're not actually alive right now. Because if you're alive in the particle state right now, you have to acknowledge that the truth is we are living in a toxic stew. And it was created through innovation towards comfort and, and and convenience, not by somebody's, you know, nasty approach to making billions of dollars. We created Microsoft because we wanted the convenience of the computers. We created Monsanto because we didn't, didn't want to grow gardens anymore. We got tired of weeding. So we wanted Roundup. And so we all sprayed it in our backyards. We created these multi billion trillion dollar industries. By our own desire for convenience and comfort that 's all like and are there is there human greed and misperception and you know back dealing and all well, that 's all of human history of course that 's going on. Why would we vilify this chapter worse than the Roman Empire or any other empire that 's ever fallen? We simply are watching the fall of another empire it 's hard because it 's ours.
0: The American <laughs> yeah. Empire is collapsing,
1: and right. so we can have a lot of emotionality around it. We can have a lot of denial around that. Certainly Germany had a lot of denial at one point about the fall of their own empire and their, the military state that rose out of that was symptomatic of control needing more and more extreme measures to keep the common paradigm intact. And no time in my American experience have I seen a more desperate effort to hold on to an old narrative. One that's so so limited in its perspective, like their goal is like next January. They can't even look past COVID at this point. We've had, you know, we've measured some 12,600 viral pandemics since 1976, since we changed our relationship to the virome. 12,600 compared to this one. There's 10 to the 31 viruses in the air, and we've chosen this one. You are part of a narrative if you're an American right now that is spending billions, if not trillions, of dollars and collapsing trillions of dollars of global economics over your fear of one virus. And there is no public health plan beyond that virus. In fact, we're collapsing all of our previous prevention ideas and food systems ideas just to channel more billions of dollars into this vaccine. That's not going to work. It never has. We've never developed an RNA virus vaccine that worked. That's why they keep backpedaling. Like, you know what? One injection is just not going to do it. We we already failed that. So we're going to try two injections now. And then you're going to need a booster every year. And so they're creating... on. Pretty massive economic machinery there. That's pretty cool. If you could require yeah, billi- billions model. of humans to have to subscribe to annual right. updates of their coronavirus coronavirus outbreak in two 2000- thousand to was not mapped in the same way because we didn't use the the scientifically erroneous path of PCR. We instead did it the right way which we was when we would wait for sick people to develop the syndrome and then we would study them and we would aden- identify the virus and high viral load uh, in those individuals and if they went on to die then we would mark that as a death from SARS. And there was about 9,000 of those cases or so. MERS breaks out, same thing, 8,000, 9,000 patients die in 2012, another coronavirus. Both of those conditions were mapped correctly. This time around, we took the scientifically erroneous model of PCR, which is just an application of DNA. It says nothing about how many viruses are in your bloodstream, says nothing about whether that virus is involved in your current syndrome of illness. It just says this, this virus is present in
0: your environment. Is it not true that the gentleman that invented the PCR test said that it can't be used to test for viruses well,
1: not, i mean not, not only did he say it verbally it says it all over the insert package and if you this... open up a pcr kit it says this cannot be used for the diagnosis of any disease oh, God. You know, or, or coronavirus so all pcr is is showing that there's there's you know dna or rna you know in, in transcription in the body and like i said that's the purpose of viruses and so when we see a virus spread around the world, which within six to eight weeks of, of you know its first appearance, it was all over the world. And it attaches to air particles, travels around the world. It doesn't need human airplanes or human activity to spread. Viruses spread globally all the time in history, long before humans showed up, long before the first airplane. And so this whole chasing airplanes and saying this is, you know, case number one in the U.S., this is, you know. That, that model is totally broken. That, that's not how viruses travel. You can spread a virus through respiratory droplet, but that only goes three to six feet. What's ha- what, what the main form of viral transit is aerosolized, not respiratory do- droplet. And aerosolized happens when you get high jets of air you know, to pick up a virus and, and travel with particulate, like carbon particulate in, in air pollution, for example. And so all of the high death areas that we saw related to the movement of this virus around the world was actually where we saw poisoning of air. So if you have high levels of cyanide and PM 2.5, that's where all of the pockets of death really happened. So, you know, certainly Hubei province being the best example of that toxic stew, but then Northern Italy, pockets in germany london new york louisiana you know you go spot to spot and you're going to guarantee it's going to be high pm2.5 high amounts of glyphosate injury to the soil systems to begin with but high high amounts of carbon particulate and cyanide and other toxins in the atmosphere so we have vilified this thing we chased it around the planet and in so doing we're really chasing health in the end right we're chasing we're we're chasing this elusive belief that if we could stamp this thing out we could all be healthy again when in fact, this thing should be ubiquitous in the environment, is ubiquitous in the environment. And as we saw with SARS, as we saw with MERS, and as we'll see with this thing, it's going to go away from causing any illness. It's still going to be there. So remember, if in five years, they're still doing PCR saying, we're still being having new cases of, it's because they're doing PCR. If we did PCR right now for SARS, or if we do PCR right now for HIV, great study looking at 8700 pa- uh, healthy individuals in america europe and and parts of asia where they have the lowest hiv rates documented in the world they they took 8700 patients from those environments and looked by pcr for all of the viruses that were currently present in their bloodstream 6% of them had hiv they had wow. already these were healthy individuals wow. screening negative by blood screening and they have hiv Wow. And yet they have no illness, they have no sickness, and There's, that's
0: because they're showing the RNA from that.
1: They're expanding the yeah genomic single their signal from an RNA virus or a DNA virus. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what the PCR kit is designed to express either one. And so you're amplifying this trace signal of mm-hmm. genomics, which are there. There was six percent. I mentioned that a seven out of that HIV. Only one percent of them had any form of influenza. Six times influenza was HIV. And so, if if that study is reflecting the real prevalence of HIV virus in the environment, i.e., the human body, we are some 425 million cases short of HIV in Western civilization, let alone the globe in the billions. And so, you know, it's just an amazing number that you could start to see, you know, really coming out. Um, let's see, 425 million. That is for the whole world. So, in population 7.6 billion. You extrapolate the six percent. Best case scenario, we're at like 425 million cases worldwide, and that's many hundreds of millions more than is currently thought to be existing. So this, what I'm trying to paint there is this picture of PCR is simply showing you the environment. It shows you what is the genomic mix in the environment. Ultimately, within two years, we know we're going to be in balance with that coronavirus. There's not going to be any you know, new corona deaths. They're gonna tell us there are because they can do PCR and somebody who's dying from other some other cause. They can say, see, there's another coronavirus death. See, this is
0: the part that's pissing me off, is the lack of clarity and the I think the the confu- the widespread confusion when we're looking at numbers when it comes to COVID-19 or coronavirus, that all of these other deaths being attributed to this vilified virus when there are all these other comorbidities. I mean, we have people literally dying in a motorcycle accident now and you know, the ambiguity of that death certificate, I guess, if you could say, or the announcement is that well, they died with COVID, you know, there's this play on words and they're saying it died of COVID. And so I, I just, I don't even know where to trust the numbers when you see the waves, the models going up and down in different countries and cities, um, Because it just seems the entire mechanism of testing is faulty. So if you test a wider swath of population using a test that's not even valid or designed for that, you're of course going to get, quote, unquote more cases, right? When in fact, on the ground, how many people are actually exhibiting the respiratory failure failure and the other um, symptoms of said pathology? So the science
1: group that published on this current PCR kit that was produced and distributed worldwide within the first couple of weeks back in January, February, did the, the appropriate study, which is to see how many false positives come from this thing. Like when we actually start testing people who are healthy or sick, how many false positives are there? The answer is it had a, a 19% true positive rate, which meant that 81% of the, true, the positive signals were wrong. 19% accurate on the other side of those people that were confirmed by viral load testing and other mechanisms outside of PCR to see how much virus was there it missed 30% of those and so we had one that was missing 30% of the right ones and it was overdiagnosing by 80% of the ones that didn't have it and so it was it's worse than a flip of a coin like it, you can't imagine a worst case scenario for a test and yet this is what we've now distributed all over the world to say this is how many things and i'm amazed that Like, I'm pretty used to seeing the WHO and CDC do these kinds of stunts over the last few years. It's not unusual to see them kind of taking a political agenda and building some science around it. But I've been kind of amazed to see Johns Hopkins, you know, since the very first weeks of this thing, posting on their website exactly how many cases and exactly how many deaths were happening from... I'm like, where are they getting that? (laughs) Data from that's a un that's university has the number one rated public health school in the world is Johns Hopkins public health school, and I try I applied there I tried to get in because I was it was amazing school, and now I'm looking at that thinking like who in that school is using a PCR test to pronounce some public health statement on some exact number of cases worldwide. And I don't know who it is. It doesn't make sense. I know it's not any of the PhD statisticians in there. just can't. They know that's not right. They, there's nobody who's done the math that thinks these numbers are accurate. Is there a coronavirus? You know, At this point in the conversation, it might start to sound like, Zach just thinks this whole narrative is fake. Yeah, there's definitely a coronavirus. And I can, you know, I, I, I would say we actually know the RNA sequence of that
0: thing. We we don't know one has, portion has of it. Has this particular one that they're calling COVID 19 been isolated in a way that is necessary in order to verify that it does, in fact, exist? And it's, I would say yes. Form? I would say yes. I think it's going to take us two more years to really sort that out because
1: the number of times you need to, to study that virus over and over again to really validate, because viruses misspell themselves intentionally all the time Mm -hmm. and so when we say here's the RNA signal of this virus it's going to take you know a lot of test cycles before we can be pretty sure like this is the consensus RNA you know strand of this particular coronavirus um, but you know, suffice us to say, we're, we we've glimpsed a a variant of a coronavirus at the genetic level. It doesn't get identified well by that PCR test because it can amplify almost any coronavirus out there. It has a hard time being specific, you know, mm-hmm. to this particular, particular variant. And remember, coronavirus is ever present and causes a significant portion of the common cold. You know, it's 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 not like these every ten year pandemics is when we see coronavirus. We see coronavirus all the time, mm-hmm. and so there's an RNA sequence that's been attributed to this new thing. It'll take us a couple of years to really sort out. Is that really a new RNA strand or is it just a, did we miscategorize it? Who knows? But in hindsight, I don't think there's even going to have the tolerance for anybody listening at that point. So I think (laughs) at this point we can say, We've either made a scientifically accurate or an inaccurate statement that there was a new coronavirus thing and we went and called it COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 or whatever we're calling it. I, I, it's interesting that the regulatory bodies have spent most of their time arguing over what we should call this thing rather than... What about that human immune system and healthy food and healthy lifestyles? As you said, (laughs) you know, like literally they're arguing for Uh, weeks and months over the most critical phase of a pandemic. They're arguing about what should be called, you know, and so what sounds scary enough, or I don't know. I don't know what the rationale is, but suffice to say, we use the wrong diagnostic tool to map this thing around the world. All we've done is record the traveling of a virus around the world. That happens all the time. Why are so many Americans dying? Why was there a big, huge peak in, in all cause mortality? And that, that's an important question, and me and a bunch of my colleagues have been really working to understand that because there was a sudden peak in all-cause mortality if you base it on the numbers where they said our baseline was. But if you look at the CDC numbers as to our baseline of, of all-cause mortality, every single year during our respiratory seasons, we've been above the baseline, which means we don't have the right baseline. If every year you're in excess of your baseline, something's wrong. And so I don't know if that's an antiquated one that they're using, but suffice it to say, whatever we're saying is an excess is not you know, mapped to our true recent total death you know, rate. Then you need to adjust death rate by, to age and population before it becomes a relevant statistic. And they've done none of that. Not once has the news adjusted any of their rates of mortality, all-cause mortality, by age or population. And as soon as you adjust for age and population, suddenly what looks like this huge spike becomes a pretty blunt uh, increase in in all-cause mortality. Then you need to look back more than last year. They keep showing data from last year to this year to show this big spike. If you look over the seven-year trend or the 37-year trend, we've been going like this in the last seven. So a little bit uh, up, up, up in the last 30 years and then really steep. If you adjust for age, it's been pretty much flat and then it's starting to rise in the last seven years. So we've had rising all-cause mortality except for last year. So uh, last year, for whatever variant of reasons, we had a low mortality rate. What happens when less people die last year is they get a year older and are more likely to die this year.
0: Oh, damn, I never thought of that. So all of the
1: excess mortality we have right now should be taking into consideration <laughs> right. the people that didn't die last year that are now going to die this year because they got lucky last year. Right. And so until you start looking over the extrapolation of the trajectory of public health, are you ever going to be able to make any accurate statement or assessment of today's public health? And we keep taking these myopic you know, blinders on. We don't see the past. We don't see the future. And we're making literally trillion dollar decisions around that myopic and, and short-sighted viewpoint, as well as an ignorance to the history. We are going to die. And so does Zach think that nobody's getting sick and dying? No, I just told you we're going to go extinct in 60 years. I think we could all die if we don't radically change what we're doing. But we can radically change what we're doing because there is one knowingness that we're all emerging from. And we could develop a, a collective perspective so that we would call consciousness to simply change everything that we 're doing, and I in the last few months i 've become convinced it 's going to happen honestly i 've been traveling with this information for almost ten years now with this you know dialogue emerging of like oh my gosh, as a scientist, as a former chemotherapy producer. I was going down the wrong path and it's taken me a long time to figure out what it, where is the truth, What is it? Isn't, and I don't claim to know it yet. All I know is I'm getting funner and funner data because it's taking me deeper, deeper into the soil. And mm-hmm. if all of my science is taking me back into the soil and saying that if we could get public health rooted here, we would solve everything. I have a very high degree of confidence in that. Do I understand how to do regenerative farming perfectly? no, No, I don't know any of that. I'm not a farmer, but I'm a scientist that is convinced that if we are rooted in the biologic function of the microbiome, we are extremely resilient. We can repair at an extreme rate. And I get goosebumps over the idea that we're halfway through the sixth extinction. And the amount of viromic information that's happened since just 1976 has never been seen on the planet before. We have the most rich viromic database of biologic adaptation and biodiversification that's ever existed. So if we change in these next couple of years, we're going to get to participate in a great creative generative future of mother earth. We could participate in a rise of life biodiversity that's never been seen on the planet before. And so while we're busy wringing our hands and yelling at Monsanto and Bayer, if we instead become a solution-based mindset Mm -hmm. and say, we just need to rise above this and let's let... David Icke and you know and and the status quo. I think David Icke's smart enough and you know has the the courage and the prowess to hold the entire US government at bay in a debate. Like I think they can he's, he carries that kind of space. So I have a huge respect for him. I have huge respect for anybody who, who's gonna stand up and speak their truth. And if I don't disagree with their truth, which is pretty often It's irrelevant because they're speaking some element of, from their perspective towards that knowingness, their consciousness is speaking towards that thing. And if I try to vilify David Icke or, you know, the Gates Foundation, it's going to slow me down to looking at the bigger, cooler story of what would the bacteria and fungi be doing right now?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: What are they doing right now? And the answer is they're putting out an enormous amount of information communication and trying to connect more life. They're trying to get connection between biodiversity. So all we need to do is create a society that's doing that. What if I woke up every morning and all of my companies, I, I, I set out to organize all my employees into how do we connect more human beings that are interested in rehearsing a different future? And we're going to start to rehearse that future in our mind's eye first so that we can get a, a collective consciousness about where we want to go. We want to go into a place where there's no need for... 5G radiation towers because we've figured out how to communicate through the fungi. And we have mycelial networks of fiber optic cables that are driving, you know, global technology. I like we, it. We have energy that's now created entirely from the, the convergence of hydrogen and oxygen into water, which produces an enormous amount of heat. And so we can capture that energy. And that's, That technology is now just around the corner and we're going to get to see that. And I can't wait to see that expand. So we're going to replace our entire energy sector. We're going to eliminate coal and oil and gas industry over the next 30 to 50 years because this technology is so good at doing what it does is producing free energy. And so we're going to have such a thing as free energy. We're going to have such a thing as currency that's not based in some financial policy, but for, but based in real human interaction. We're going to change the currency system. And as soon as we change the energy sector and the currency system, all other innovation is, has got to realign. And as long as that whole economy is backed by soil, not oil, we're going to win the game because it turns out that regenerative soil management can grow the asset. We can get more carbon sequestration, we can get more nutrient density, and we can actually build soil through good soil management, whereas an oil-based economy is always going to be short-lived because it's a a consumptive short-term Loss, and so you're you're the the very commodity that was going to back your entire economy. When we pulled off of the gold standard in the 1920s and 30s, there, we had to back it with something, and so it became our oil and gas industry. It became our wealth. It became the, the 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 you know the military machine that was run by that thing. And that was basically what we bought, backed our currency with. And so that that's why our, our our nation and our empire, if you will, is collapsing is because we based it on an entire system that is consumptive and extractive and therefore failing. And now comes along soil science and we're like, oh my God, if we backed a currency with this, can you imagine the regenerative thing. So that's what our scientists and, and engineers are all working on now with our mathematicians and programmers is let's literally design a currency on, on the way that mycelium work. And if we do that, the fungi are not only going to be our solution, they're going to show us who we really are. If you haven't seen Paul Stamets' work, you know, please, you know, if you're listening to this, stop this and go listen to Paul Stamets because he's way more interesting than I am. But Paul's work is so profoundly important because it's showing the hyperintelligence of nature this yeah. thing called quorum sensing in the fungi. You know, When fungi get into a large enough colony, it does hyper-intelligence and can start to do network planning and can distribute resources over great distances. It can, it can realize changes in the bacterial matrix that are needed for that particular tree. And over here, this bush needs this particular matrix of bacteria. So it'll switch the microbiome around, transit new resources in. It's literally functioning as like the most optimized city in the world is just your typical backyard garden. That kind of matrix, when we start put building economic systems and impact investment funds and all that around that design, we, we can only win the game.
0: Wow, that's beautiful, and I love the way that you relate it back to the fungi, because <laughs> I, I really do believe that particular kingdom are such powerful allies for us in so many different ways. Consciously right? Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, for people, for people listening, I, you know, I don't know that there's necessarily an answer to this but i know kind of in you know in my squad of people we're not wearing masks we're not we're hugging we're making love we're living our best life we're going out in the sun we're doing ice baths our immune systems are strong we're we're crushing it we're eating organic you know even regenerative and biodynamic when possible and you know i, I know i'm speaking of a life of great privilege but it's not come um it's been earned, you know, in many ways, <laughs> put it that way. But the people in my sphere are kind of looking out at the general public going, oh, you poor people, man. You're, you're be- The news is brainwashing you into this fear paradigm. But I still don't know exactly, for example, like does a mask, like a, not even a surgical mask, but like a bandana around your face. Mm-hmm. Help at all uh, to stop you from spewing out a virus onto someone else or breathing one in? Um, is there anything really to be afraid of when we see, I think when this first came out, I was like, oh, it's all a scam. It's fake. That was my first perspective because just not my gut. I'm like, this just doesn't feel right. And just all the fake testing and misappropriated deaths and all that. So I'm just like, nah, fake. I'm ignoring the whole thing. Then you have people actually dying and, you know, everyone knows someone that works in an ICU and they're like, no, man, there's COVID people and they're dying. And it's kind of confusing when you're on both sides of it. And from your perspective, um, from what I've gathered and what seems to make the most sense to me is you're talking about like the cumulative effect of a really toxic planet, right? In Wuhan, Northern Italy, New York City, et cetera, right? You've got geoengineering sprayed everywhere. You've got glyphosate. You've got... Um, you know, not just, it's not even, fi- to me, it's not even 5G. Like 5G has been out for a while. It's, there's 4G frequencies that are potentially more dangerous than some of the 5G networks that they're rolling out. It's all the Gs, right? <laughs> it's just radiation sickness. You could just call it that. It seems to me that, okay, there is some version of coronavirus that can be kind of nasty. Some people are getting it. The people that are getting it and dying are people that are likely very toxic from all these other inputs and aren't leading a lifestyle and giving them a robust immune system. So, for someone that's kind of more in the mainstream narrative, like how precautious should one be, and, and do these masks that we're being forced to wear hold any hope for protecting us or the people around us? Yeah. Um,
1: so, I'm going to try to I'm going to try to get this. Into a nutshell, I'm, I'm afraid this is going to be a really long answer. <laughs> um,
0: um, that's my fault. I know you just like tied a really nice bow no, on this conversation no, this is important. with, with a message of hope, but I, I just can't walk no, away. No, without...
1: There's a reality that we have to address here that people, that the narrative is, is focusing on. So let's go back to how the virus emerged. So the virus comes out of stress. So um, we knew, you know, years ago that Wuhan was going to be the epicenter of a next pandemic. And when I say we like humanity knew this whether we had put the dots together or not we had all the data in front of us because we know through the science that when you stress microbiome or you stress a multicellular organism it starts to produce viruses okay so force, force genetic you know variation and all this so you can look across the plant and say, well, where's the highest stress level of that? And the pork industry is a good example of this, of like high toxicity, where you've got an enormous amount of antibiotic concentration in their feed through glyphosate and all that, but also just added to their food. To try to abate the amount of, uh, of you know, invasive infections that you're going to see in that short one year, two year life of, that they'll have in that factory farm. And so in that short amount of their life, they're being pressured with all these antibiotics. And it turns out that if you look across the whole world, the highest pork production in the world now is in Wuhan province. So you have that chemical demand. Then if you look across the whole swath of glyphosate production for the feed for these animals of not just pork, but the biggest one demand is poultry, obviously. But uh, the, the chemical GMO crops that are being produced to feed these animals, Wuhan, again, is the most dense area in China. But that's not enough to create a pandemic. Now, viruses will spread regionally, but to get them global, you need to bind them with carbon particulate in the air to get them to go really far. Um, and that can be done through organic processes, the CO2 and methane and some of these things can start to bind different elements of viruses. But the, it's the larger stuff that comes from volcanic activity or uh, solar uh, solar impact through you know, downstream lightning hitting the ground can liberate carbon particulate into the air, all kinds of natural phenomena. But now what's really happening is we've mobilized the entire, you know, oil base to be put into our petroleum industry and the petroleum is being burned into this small particulate of carbon. And so in high areas of high air pollution, you have uh, PM 2.5, particulate matter at 2.5 microns is a specific thing that all governments track. There's a bunch of NGOs that track the particulate PM 2.5. You can go right online, type in PM 2.5 map, and you'll see where it's at highest concentrations. You can actually go to your city and find the PM 2.5 on any given day. They have to track this in real time because it's, it's toxic to humans. So all these environmental protection agencies, both governmental and non-governmental, are tracking PM 2.5. So now you overlap the PM 2.5 map of the whole world, and the hottest spot is typically Beijing, historically, right at the exact moment, relatively low. But historically, uh, Beijing is this huge generator of particulate matter. You can hardly see the skyscrapers, all of that. They're going through great efforts over the last couple of years that I really admire to try and clean up that environment. But nonetheless, it remains very toxic there that PM 2.5 particulate from Beijing presses down through the northern climate uh, high-pressure system coming down from the north and pushes that right onto Hubei province. And so in Hubei, you have the perfect setup for distribution of viral information. And so you have... extinction-level stress going on at the microbiome of the pork and poultry industry and everything else going on in Hubei, and you have extreme microbial uh, uh, stress coming out of the soils where all that uh, glyphosate production is happening. And in the midst of that, you're killing the soil's ability to reabsorb any of that carbon particulate because it can't breathe. The mycelium have been killed, the fungi have killed, over-tilled, over blah, blah, blah. And so now you have the perfect setup for, this is, this is a microcosm of our extinction in 60 years. If, we all, if the whole world looked like Hubei, we'd all be dead some time back. Hubei gets a little bit of grace because there's, there's still an ecosystem on the planet that will absorb this carbon particulate come spring, summer, and into early fall. And so we'll absorb all that toxicity and down to about 6% of residual or something like that. And then we'll rebuild that whole toxic stew again over our winter months. So that's why we have what we call flu season. Flu is around all the time. It's, it's not like, oh, it suddenly shows up the third week of November every year. But if you look at the CDC maps of, of respiratory season, it always starts in the third week of November. So what the hell is going on with that? Why the third week of November does the Northern Hemisphere suddenly go into the respiratory virus stage? It's because the virus is around all the time, but come the, between the third week of October and the third week of November... We lose the, the organic material reabsorption of carbon particulate and it explodes in the northern hemisphere.
0: Oh, interesting, because all of the plants lose their leaves, et cetera. Yes. Oh, that's wild. And so that's our huh. flu season is
1: actually solar winter. And so as our soil goes into wintertime and we can't reabsorb CO2 and we're producing too much of it and we start to get higher and higher residuals year after year, we start to become more and more toxic in those winter months. And so the third week of November is where it really goes wild. So these images you can just see on NASA in real time. You just track a whole year by NASA and see the, the it goes from greens and blues all over the world. A couple little red hot spots around Hubei and you know Tokyo and New York, Northern Italy being a big one. And then suddenly, between third week of October, and suddenly everything starts going oranges, reds. But by March, it's like you can't even believe it. You can't even see the countries anymore in the outlines. It's just bright red. It's just like carbon junk in the atmosphere suddenly between you know the second third week in may and june it all clears gone you can see everything again it's all greens and blues and so springtime brings about this regenerative capacity for resilience so September of last year, that's when we think that this virus probably really got out. The first cases really got recognized by one physician that had been on the front lines of SARS and said, I'm seeing SARS patients. I haven't seen this since SARS. So there's a new virus you know, coming around, it was the theory. So right at the end of December, this report comes out. And then by January, everybody's starting to scramble thinking, okay, we might have the next thing here. And uh, interestingly, if you're looking at the air pollution between those dates of September, it's showing up and then suddenly it's starting to become really relevant by the third week of November with cases not really being recognized for another month in the hospitals, people were dying, but uh, we just said it was flu or whatever. Every year people are dying. It's like third or fifth cause of death worldwide, depending on what, what season you're in. And so it's very prevalent. So it took us a while to recognize it, but Most likely, we're seeing an uptick in respiratory mortality. And again, if you adjust for seven-year trend, population, all these things, the uptick is even now quite minimal. But there was an uptick. And so I'm not here to tell you that nobody's dying of a respiratory uh, failure or a respiratory death. What I'm telling you is it doesn't look like anything that we've seen before in our typical influenza things. And the difference is this looks like a poisoning, not an infection. And so a really nice study coming out of the New York Hospitals uh, 5700 patients admitted to New York Hospitals with coronavirus detectable by PCR said so these are corona cases and they published of these you know 5700 people what was their presenting symptoms or, or what was their presenting vital signs their laboratories very extensive uh, thing and their temperature was normal no fever in the uh, on the average across those 5700 people there was no elevated white blood cell count or what we call left shift suggesting an infection There was no signs of bone marrow suppression, no reactivity at the vascular level, showing a high vascular inflammation that you would expect with a virus going on. So by that study, I would say we have no evidence that the people that died of this condition in New York hospitals showed any signs of infection when they showed up. And so instead, what they showed up with was low oxygen and early liver failure. And so... Uh, when you start to see that combination where you have somebody who has no signs of infection, no fever, and can't carry oxygen, you're starting to get into a category that's not infectious, but it's actually called uh, uh, histotoxic hypoxia. And so histotoxic hypoxia, there's many chemicals that can do this, but the most classic one is cyanide. And cyanide binds to PM2.5 in our air pollution. And so as we start to look at this virus, which... It's been shown coronavirus bonds really actively to PM2.5 as most other viruses will. You can imagine this new virus that different than influenza tags the ACE2 receptor. And so you have a very specific delivery system into the bloodstream that's going to now bind to blood vessels and and deliver anything that it goes into the bloodstream more rapidly than influenza will. And now picture that virus that's supposed to go lung into bloodstream vasculature is now carrying a PM2.5 molecule that's tagged with a bunch of cyanide on the backside of that. And so the virus, most of us are asymptomatic. We see it, we absorb it, nothing, we reproduce it, no problem. Pass it on, no problem. But if we're in an area of high pollution with high cyanide, that virus just caused cyanide poisoning, which presents with no fever, no white blood cell count, no shift, liver failure, and hypoxia. And so we poisoned ourselves with cyanide and 64 other 120 right. other toxins. I don't know which ones it is, but we basically poisoned ourselves so that the red blood cell could no longer cause, uh, carry oxygen. And that's the hypoxia part. It's not a respiratory failure that you would see with pneumonia. It's not, the lungs are fine. The problem is that you've poisoned the red blood cell such that it can't carry the oxygen that's being freely absorbed by the lungs as it should. And when you poison the red blood cell such that it can't carry oxygen, you start to get a, a hypoxic injury. This is just the same with drowning. When you drown somebody, there's, there's a process or, you know, poignantly, George Floyd, choked to death. And so you've got somebody whose airway is compressed and can't breathe, can't breathe, can't breathe. At the moment of death, there's no fluid in their lungs. There's nothing going on there. But if you, you resuscitate that individual, George Floyd, let's use that great example. If, if that knee had been released off of that throat just, you know, a few minutes earlier, had not died, three days later, he would have presented like a SARS patient, a COVID patient. He would have presented with fluid in the lungs, liver damage, and kidney damage from, from long-term hypoxia. And subsequent to that, in the days and weeks that will follow, he will start getting micro blood clots throughout his organ system because there's a downstream propensity for blood clots to form mm. after you know long-term hypoxic injury. And so... Yeah. What we did basically to the population through a toxicity of our air pollution combined with a virus that was supposed to go where it did, and it did, but it didn't intend to pull cyanide behind it as we poisoned the entire human population and we saw an uptick of mortality. Why different this year than last year? Is it because of SARS-CoV-2? Is it because COVID-19 showed up? I would say we have absolutely no data to suggest that the uptake in respiratory death and cyanide poisoning and everything else that I'm talking about is toxic hypoxia is because of that virus. We have no data to suggest that because there's something way more obvious that happened between last year's respiratory year and 2019-20 that would have caused this entire syndrome. And it was the Australian fires and it was the California fires. Oh, shit. So we put more carbon material up into the atmosphere over that fire season than we, in any time in history, really at least in recent memory. Wow. And so we had to have high mortality this coming year, especially anything related to cardiovascular disease or respiratory failure. We poison the atmosphere with more carbon particulate to carry any viruses. We then tracked a virus that happened to be called new. And I, I know that the science dates back many years to showing that viruses tag PM 2.5. I know that very smart scientists are in the government. And so this whole thing of this group of people that got together late last fall and said there's going to be a surprise virus that spreads around the world in these next few months before Trump is out of office, there's going to be this surprise pandemic. They were spot on because I think they were looking at the PM 2.5 concentration in the atmosphere. There's going to be an uptick in total mortality and respiratory death this year. And if we could find a new virus to blame that on, we could justify a huge pharmaceutical reconsolidation of wealth. Damn. Wow. Hot take. And so I have no idea if it was (laughs) that intentional. And they just got lucky. But it sure suggests that somebody was looking at that data, including last year's low mortality rates, which is an exciting thing, because you know there's going to be high mortality next year, just by natural cause. And so there was this huge opportunity that was very visible in all of the signs and you have the aging you know, the baby boomer population very real on this right now too. Why, why do we have increasing mortality for the last seven years? Because we have more people over the age of 70 than ever before. Right. And so people are going to be passing away at higher and higher rates over these next few years, even if all things are healthy and well, because they're older. And so we have this perfect storm of an opportunity for a global government to freak the hell out of us because everybody's dying. Well, of course they had to die this year we poisoned the atmosphere with more carbon particulate that had higher levels of cyanide in history. Earth Justice, ironically, back in May of 2019, before all of this outbreak pandemic happened, Earth Justice was suing the US government for failure to tell Americans how high cyanide levels were getting in the municipalities that are now COVID centers. And so this was totally predictable. And therefore, I think it was predicted. The response to it was monetized and the pharmaceutical elite are able to do that very well now. And it's very hard for us scientists and clinicians to keep up against them because they don't show us the data. Right? If you go on the CDC website to really look at the seven-year data and everything else, it's all antiquated data. It's very hard to really find the data from the last seven years. They don't show you that. They'll show you normal compared to this year and all this. It's very, You can't find 30-year trends, seven-year trends and all that. So they keep you very myopically blinded. So there's a real need for an international scientific community to come together and create our own independent you know, IT platform that's able to collect real-time public health data from around the world so that we can, put, we can start to participate in public health decisions in real time instead of waiting for regulatory bodies to do this retrospectively or make you know malinformed emergency decisions that aren't based in the, in the real science around it. And so there's been a lack of allocation of funds to do that kind of, you know, technological, you know, integration. It's small amounts of money that are needed, you know. I'm very excited about this fund I'm working with right now. $100 million could change the whole scope of science. It doesn't take much money when it's well-placed. And so we could definitely change the direction of a $3.5 trillion medical industry with $100 million of well-placed research and reallocation of resources. And part of this fund... We're working on is the developing uh, regenerative organic mater- uh, food system for food banks in COVID hit areas. The, the blessing of COVID is it's showing me exactly where the most vulnerable populations are from a terrain standpoint. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. So if
1: I can rush in and go create a regenerative revolution in farming at the root causes of problems systemically at the public health level, we're going to win the game really quick and there's some great success stories going on around you know this food bank in Irvine is very exciting they've they've planted 3000 square feet of 3000 square feet tiny on their parking lot in the back a regenerative organic growing system and and that is now helping leverage produce into 500,000 families in LA. And so that little 3000 square foot footprint is being leveraged brilliantly economically to start bringing in produce from all over the world uh, or all over the country to to feed these people. So the the metrics are there to show that we're being poisoned by our own behavior. (laughs) we can expect more death are people dying right now yes more people than last year absolutely had to be cuz not many people died last year so we're having a catch up here from from covid maybe but it's just one of the many you know 10 to the 31 virus that's circulating we happen to give that one a name and do a bunch of testing on that but i guarantee you all the viruses are circulating at a higher rate that's right that's why even with an erroneous stupid test that doesn't really work It's still not accounting for all of its total mortality. So where's all that total mortality excess coming in? Well, it's coming from all of the other viruses that are trafficking chemicals into our body inappropriately. And so the viruses, in their effort to get into our genomic apparatus to give us an update because of our
0: toxic air, is poisoning us. Viruses don't mean to do that. They're not trying to hurt you. So the the viruses are really more the innocent bystander in this equation. (laughs) That's what it sounds like. They are totally benevolent. There is no ethic
1: in viruses. There's only integrity of
0: life. (laughs) Right. They literally have integrity rather than ethic. And if a virus isn't in fact, I mean, I would argue that everything is consciousness from, you know, a more esoteric point of view, but that it's it's not like a multi-celled or single-celled organism that can be killed and life snuffed out of it. Um, wh- how do uh, like antiviral drugs or ozone, for example, I've always thought of like ozone kills viruses, you know, before I knew that they weren't alive. How does something like that even work for something that's not alive? Does it just interrupt the just the replication? It. Yeah,
1: so it's a it's a package of genetic information mm-hmm. carrying its a ribosome too. So apparatus for you know someone will be able to code for their own apparatus for, of translation. But uh, as, as that travels in, if it if it's too damaged to replicate, then it becomes irrelevant. So sunlight is the best way to do this, right? So sunlight radiation. You know, disrupts the DNA sequences in viruses all the time, so they become relatively irrelevant to us in, in mass. And so, sunlight's a very good sterilizer. So, what we should have done at the moment of this, you know, terrifying pandemic, we should have all rushed out naked into the into <laughs> the environment agree. and just been merged. Nobody would have died. You know, it's like, you know, but instead we we withdrew away from the sun, we withdrew away from fresh air, and we sequestered. And the more severe we sequestered away, the higher the mortality. And you know you can show this in a hospital system or a nursing home, and everybody's like, "Let's put people are crowded together." No, not actually, because in, in the massive protests that happened in New York City, just as mortality was decreasing in New York City, we rushed hundreds of thousands of people into the streets of New York in close proximity. where some of them wearing masks, sure, but no, we're near enough to say that we were social distancing or protecting anyone. We never answered the mask thing come back to that. I, I haven't forgotten.
0: That, that'll be the <laughs> one so last question.
1: We've got this whole mix. And yet, mortality in New York keeps going like this throughout all of those protests and everything else it's not the proximity of people. At this stage, in the first few weeks of the transit of viruses around, human secretions, human secretory droplets and all that uh, can be a significant contributor to the movement of virus. But now that carbon particulate matter has carried this virus around the world six or seven times now already, all that's going to happen is when we go release us from quarantine, why do the cases go up and why does mortality go up? Well, first, we're probably just tracking that because everybody rushes out to get their test. That's what's happened initially. Is like, oh, I need to go back to work. I should see if I've been exposed to the COVID. So we all get tested and we have a test that is 80% wrong. And so a bunch of people come positive that may or may not be positive, but irrelevantly, they're not sick. And then there's some people that do get sick when we go and take people off of quarantine. What's with that? Well, as soon as we go off quarantine, our PM 2.5 levels go right back up because we put traffic back on the road and we do all this stuff and we get the cyanide poisoning right back. And we know now in Hubei very clearly when PM2.5 drops below 40 parts per cubic meter, mortality goes away, goes above that, starts to see mortality increase again. And so for Hubei, it seems to be around that. For New York, it seems to be lower. Like we can see that around 12 to 20 parts per per cubic meter but nonetheless we have these thresholds which would suggest that new yorkers are probably not as healthy as people in china you know and so if, if it takes less cm2 pm 2.5 to poison us what does that mean for us but the reason why we get sicker and start dying more is not because there's more virus you can't right now we're all the world's covered in it corona's here <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: you can stop fearing it it's here and you've been exposed and if you've been exposed and you test negative does that mean you don't have the virus no it just means that you figured out a homeostasis with that genomic update and you never had to replicate it you saw no need for that replication or you already absorbed that into the matrix of the intelligence of your genome and you're not making that protein that would come from that virus or whatnot so you've come into balance as a humanity again we only have about eight or nine more months and all of humanity will be balanced and in that short period of time, they're going to rush out with a vaccine, throw this vaccine in the market. It's going to be a piece of crap. And they're going to see, see, it fixed everything. It went away.
0: <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that's of,
1: why they have to rush it to market is because this thing's going oh, to be away if they wait through next summer. So, so they kind of, have to get something out by next January to make it appear so like
0: it helps. It's kind of like the models you you see of polio, right? where. You know, you, polio is, you know, at the steady level and then it starts to tank when, I don't know, whenever it was, the time. Lines 1960s, up. yeah. Yeah. And then, and then it it flatlines and then a decade later, the vaccine comes from it. And you're like, what happened then? Oh, refrigeration, sanitation. like. Well, I, yeah. I mean, there's two
1: major things that happened with polio. This goes down a little bit of rabble, but quickly. You know, we keep attributing things to the vaccine, but what was happening during it's important to remember that we'd never had endemic, you know, severe problems with polio until the 1940s. And so polio has been ever present around the world for since the beginning of mankind and long before. And yet it's only got little pockets where it seems to show up in endemic kind of areas where it's kind of always there smoldering along and there's polio in parts of India and all of this. And you can travel the world and see, oh my gosh, look at that person with polio. We never see that in the United States. On well, the 1940s in the United States, we suddenly saw a ton of polio and hospitals had to be emergently built because we were seeing so much polio. And so the Colorado health system where I trained uh, with my medical degree was actually built as a sanatorium for patients with you know, polio and all of this. There was initial ones built for TB back in the late 1800s, but then polio really necessitated all these places to be built with all these iron lungs, We had all these children paralyzed, they couldn't breathe. So we put them in iron lungs to breathe for them. Today, you see no polio in the United States, and so or by the 1970s. So what happened between 1945 and 1970 to create this huge epidemic? Nobody pays attention to that. They just say that somehow a vaccine made it go away. Well, was a lack of vaccine that made it happen in the population? No, it was a change in the terrain. And the main thing that happened in the 1940s when that started to really go crazy is a middle class was born out of World War II. And so with the rise of middle class, we suddenly had swimming pools all over the place and these swimming pools, you know, were natuses for polio. And so we saw it was scary for moms to take their kids to the swimming holes every week because somebody was going to get polio and they never knew if it was their kid or not. And so it felt like this crapshoot. So there's huge fear of polio. There's all this stuff. Between that 1940s and the 1960s, we start to understand chlorination of pools and we start to chemicalize our pools and we clean up that swimming environment and as children, suddenly polio starts going away. So we changed the terrain that they were swimming in But we also changed the terrain of their immune system because in the 1940s, coming out of World War II, we had really developed a lot of technology around x-ray during World War II. And so we started using x-ray radiation to knock out the tonsils of children that had tonsillitis. And so we would irradiate their tonsils, which happened to be the very immune system that would bring you into balance with a respiratory virus uh, or a waterborne (laughs) virus as it is. And so we started to irradiate the upper, or we were surgically removing those tonsils. So we were either burning them out or we were cutting them out. At the same time that we were creating these, you know, pools of, of you know, unhealthy microbiome unbalanced, and so we went into this abnormal relationship with polio, saw this explosion of polio. By the 1960s, we realized that kids probably should have their tonsils, and we shouldn't universally remove those, and all of this, and so we stopped that practice towards the late 60s or so. And then, you know, by that time, you see eradication of polio already happening, and the vaccine didn't. Well, it came out earlier than that. It took years before we reached that, you know, herd. Herd immunity levels and everything else that was supposed to eradicate, so long before we had anything like herd immunity, if that was really the right model we we had contained this you know into you know very rare condition in the United States, which it remains today and so that if the polio vaccine worked, then the Gates Foundation would have stamped it out of uh, northern India already, where they've been spending billions of dollars you know pouring in India to eradicate this polio virus. When in fact, they're playing on this two dimensional chessboard, thinking it's the immune system versus polio. It's the immune system versus polio. We got to kill the polio. So we got to give the immune system a stimulus with this vaccine to make the polio away. And so they go and rush people over here because there's a hot spot. then the next year it pops back up over here and they're chasing it around. And if you've watched Bill's brain on, uh, you can see Bill like <laughs> going like this, he's like whack a all. You know, he's like, we got polio over here. We got polio over here. And he's showing Warren Buffett and he's like, we're stamping this out. And I'm sitting there, you know, looking at that as a, I don't know. I don't even know what I am. I don't know if I'm a doctor or scientist. or I don't know what I am. But just as an observer, and just imagining a three dimensional chessboard being handed to Bill Gates, and being like, "No, there's a terrain here." He would figure it out in a split second. But the people that are asking for all of his money are keep handing him this two dimensional board. Mm-hmm. So, so is Bill Gates the, the the demon behind all this? No, he's an he's a consummate problem solver. I think you can see him working so hard on this problem. He's Thinks he's going to solve this thing because he can outthink it. But again, he's playing on this two-dimensional chessboard that they keep mm-hmm. handing him, saying, oh, we got to spend more money over here. Okay, here's another billion dollars. Pharmaceutical companies are never going to tell him that there's a three-dimensional train model there because they are not going to get paid. And so it's, is it Gates' fault? No, it's, it's the whole system is built to, on this old narrative to exploit it for the trillions of dollars industry it is the mm-hmm. u s healthcare alone three point seven trillion dollars like that 's that's kind of like saying ten to the thirty one who knows what three point seven trillion dollars looks like, but it 's pretty awesome that you know over the next thirty years that we 'll we'll expect to spend on chronic disease management in the United States one hundred and fifty trillion dollars. What could the world do over thirty years with one hundred and fifty trillion dollars? What kind of innovations could we do? And so when we start talking about things like defund the police, defund this or that, if we're going to start reallocating resources, let's start with the healthcare system because nothing is more wasteful than this healthcare system when it comes to dollars poorly allocated on old science, old perspective. If we're going to change the world, we could do it so easily with $150 trillion. I think we can change the world with a trillion. Like I think it's pennies on the dollars to implement solutions rather than chasing the old narrative and trying to do more and more damage control over collapsing biology. Health is so cheap. And anybody who's ever done this knows this. Like I was spending all this money at the doctor and I was depressed and I was on meds and I was you know, always inflamed. I couldn't work, so I was not productive. Then I changed my lifestyle and I got healthy and I got a great job and I'm making money. I don't spend anything on my health, but for good food. And it's so cheap to be healthy. It's so expensive to be sick and you know, disconnected from my mother nature. And yeah. chronic disease is, is killing our entire economy. It's certainly taking our, our empire to its knees. And I'm okay for that collapse, but let's make sure that whatever we rebuild out of this empire... Let's not let it be another empire built on the same metrics. And I think if we allow that, I'm sorry to keep using David Icke, but you brought him on earlier. But (laughs) if we allow that narrative between David Icke and and the Gates Foundation to continue to dominate our view and all of our energies put in, which side do I believe? Oh my gosh, ringing of hands. Is there really a cabal? Are they playing? Or is this all well-meaning public health people? Like the answer is yes, both, of course. Like there's truth in both of those sides. There's very well-meaning people at the, Belgrade, at the Gates Foundation that I've had you know, joy of working or meeting with or whatever. There's really great people that are speaking truth from the alternative perspective. David Icke's probably one of them. And so there's just genius and brilliance and ultimately some altruism in, I think, everybody. Um, and if we keep fighting that out and the vaccines are a great example, I'm not anti-vaccine. Instead, if you go to my website, you can sign a petition, change.org, to change our scientific definition of child health and immunity and our approach to vaccination. So we don't need to argue pro or against it. We simply need to allow the science of the last 30 years to update our current public health policy and our R&D on vaccines. Vaccines should no longer be implemented in the population until we understand the the downstream consequences of that vaccine in in a human experience. We know from military studies that the influenza vaccine increases risk of death from coronavirus the following two years. And so if we had known that, which we did, that was 2017, what you should have heard at the beginning of this December pandemic of a new coronavirus was, oh my gosh, Nobody should get influenza this year. Please freeze the influenza vaccine policy. And please take everybody off of your ACE inhibitors and your statin drugs over the next five months because those are upregulating your absorption of this virus. And so we could have easily just stopped two drugs and not vaccinating. We would have seen decreased prevalence of of corona in in the species. Would have that changed our mortality? No, not at all. We would have just not had a a narrative of, of vaccine and we would have seen this increase in mortality because we poison the atmosphere more than we ever have before. And we had low mortality last year. So we were going to have a catch-up year on top of a very toxic year. And, you know, the good news is next year, I think we're going to have a decent year and there's going to be very little 2020, 2021 coronavirus. There'll be some, there'll be some influenza, but it's not going to be one of our big, huge spikes because we've we've absorbed that. Now in the United States, you're going to see a spike because we're gonna test like hell. And it's gonna look like there's a ton going on, but look at the global data at that point. For all of us, we just need to focus on the global dialogue. And you can look across the whole world and everybody else is settled down now, from Iran to Pakistan to you know, all over the world, numbers are settling down. And there's gonna be hotspots for sure because you can track it. As soon as you put tests anywhere now, you're gonna start measuring Corona. So you can create the, the appearance of a hotspot anywhere in the world now, if you put tests there, but mortality <laughs> is settled down. Mortality globally has settled back into our, our seasonal appropriate levels, which is going to take us through to November. Then we're going to see a seasonally appropriate uptick. But it's going to be, I think, less than than it was this year because we had a good catch up here. But the trend will be upward still. So if they say it's still above baseline, remember their baseline isn't even right. Their baseline is lower than any of the last seven years on record. They need to recalibrate their baseline before they tell you if, if all-cause mortality is on track or not. And so it's... The, the, there's a journey and I don't feel that heavy about it because I know it's going to be over soon. Next summer's like a, a blink in time. These years tick by so quick. And so while I might completely lose my mind and go crazy over mass for another year, there's a chance that I'll make it through that with some psyche intact and, wa- and want to keep, you know, trying to win this game for myself and for humanity and the rest. But, uh, in the end, we shouldn't be very dramatic about it because, my God, my grandparents, your grandparents went through World War II. And whenever I start to get dismayed, I go home, I shut the door, and I watch a World War II documentary or I watch a World War I documentary. We have been annihilating human life face-to-face with machine guns since the beginning of time. If we now do it indirectly through to maximize well through vaccines and everything else... Shame on us, but is it any different? You know, and the answer is, I think that it is different because nobody's tolerating sending our young men into machine gun fire at the numbers that we did in World War One or World War Two. So consciousness is changing. We don't tolerate that kind of brutality anymore. We're saying as a people across the world, that's not right. It's not right for children warriors to, you know, children be on battlefields. Mm-hmm what's an 18 year old compared to a 14 year old in Africa? Like, is that really, since we send all of our 18 year olds into war, is that any different? Is that really a higher ethic? Is that not child warfare, you know? And the answer is no, of course, that's child warfare. We've been doing it since the beginning of time, but less so recently, or we're starting to be like, you know, that's just not right. We mm-hmm. We need diplomacy. And so I think there's a consciousness rising. There's integrity rising. Where our ethics still lag behind, there's integrity rising. Mm -hmm. And uh, that integrity reflects, hopefully, a plugging into consciousness. And if that's happening right now, it's only because the viruses are helping us adapt faster.
0: Dude, powerful, powerful stuff. Uh, I got two last questions for you. One is, is there any sense in wearing a bandana around your face to try to stop a virus? (laughs) So maybe in the first
1: few weeks of, of, you know, if there's new genetic information and you're sick and you, and you can't tolerate genetic updates, so it's, it would have to be that global. But if you had all the risk factors and all of that, then stopping respiratory droplets in those first couple of weeks of a, of a new viral spread around the world would make some sense in that you'd have less respiratory droplets. There's no evidence that a bandana does that, but a mask, you could argue, okay, maybe that does it. So there's some rationale to it. But does it work is a whole different thing that we really lack the science for. The science has been done with the N95 mask, which is the gold standard. So now we went from you know, porous bandana that probably does nothing to the, what we call the flu mask in hospitals. So if you have a patient with influenza, you have to wear one of these masks to enter the room. The N95 respirator is, you know, designed to uh, push all of the air through the, the the mesh blown plastic rather than allowing any escape around the face. You know, so you've got your N95 respirator; it fits really well. It's you actually have to get fitted for your size and all of that to to be properly fitted for an influenza mask. So you've got your N95 respirator mask on, and they put this on coronavirus patients who are actively replicating the virus show up sick, classic hypo- histotoxic hypoxia, they're blue, they're dying in the ICU, put a mask on them. And then after you know six hours of wearing that mask, they then swab the whole inside of the mask to find all of the coronavirus and there's none. They can do PCR all day long. They can't find any virus there. They swab the outside of that mask and there's coronavirus all over the place. How is that possible? What's happening, and this has not been teased out in literature well, but this is just going back to like aeronautics engineering, is that if you go from a low pressure system into a high pressure event, you're going you're gonna to pull material off of particulate matter. And so with that high speed of, of airflow, you can pull virus, for example, off of PM 2.5. And so you've got a mask that's sitting over the face of somebody who's producing virus, sending it out into the atmosphere, and it, it can bind any particular matter, including respiratory droplets. It's coming out of my mouth at a very low pressure. I, it's you know less than a, a couple of pounds of mercury. So low respiratory exhale. As soon as it hits that one millimeter thickness of the mask... It has to channel all of that air volume through nanopart- nano-sized air channels, which means that for just a millimeter of distance, we're going to be in a very high-velocity state to get through that mask. On the immediate other side of that millimeter, there's going to be a low-pressure system again, and you're going to get this huge eddy on the other side. And so the mask is well-engineered to push virus out into the environment in an aerosolized fashion. <laughs> And so you're not going to get respiratory droplets. You're not going to get the droplets right around that three feet, but you just took aerosolized virus out in the environment is a distinct likelihood. And so they've, they've found and published you know, out of uh, Italy and China that the, they were finding that there was aerosolized virus in the air vents of hospital rooms that had COVID patients in them, uh, suggesting these patients were capable of going from respiratory droplet into aerosolized production in the hospital room, all of them wearing masks. So from my standpoint, we don't know yet if they help or not. It doesn't make sense that they would because they can't stop viruses penetrating. Viruses are smaller than, than those air passages are. So we can take them through. We've shown that they go through because you can swab it right on the outside of the mask and not on the inside of the mask.
0: Would the equivalent size-wise be something like, throwing a baseball through a hula hoop? <laughs> like what kind of size difference are we talking with a surgical mask and the actual size of a Well, the actual virus? size of the virus is tiny, tiny. So yeah, so there'd be something like that scenario there.
1: But the reason why they think it would stop is because again, they explain that it's tagged to a respiratory droplet. Got it. And so the respiratory droplet's relatively large and should snag within the, the and you can feel this when you breathe in a mask, there's all this humidity that develops mm-hmm. inside that mask. So it's supposed to be cr- cr- trapping that respiratory droplet in there. But if you have that high pressure system that's now able to strip virus out of those respiratory particles, it doesn't matter how much humidity is absorbed or how much humidity is sitting inside your mask. If you can strip that of all the virus, which is what the study is showing, there's no virus on the inside of the mask. Then, then it suggests that it's it's aerosolizing on the other side of that. Wow! And so now that we're again months and months or a year into this, you know, uh, pandemic. It becomes irrational to be outside with a mask on because outside is virus that virus is blanketed in the place. What makes some sense is that if you have somebody who 's sick right now that you 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 do your proper distancing just to adjust your volume of virus if you 're really concerned but remember you know, a good example this happened in my family recently. One of my members of my distant family shows up with positive and she's PCR positive in like blood, and antibodies positive, like everything's positive. So I think that's probably true positive. Meanwhile, she's got, you know, just all this, you know, life around her and nobody no, nobody tests positive, nobody gets sick, and she's not sick either. And so with nobody sick, we see a virus becoming positive in an individual. That's happening all over the world. It's irrelevant to that person. It's irrelevant to anybody else. And so it's an interesting journey now to realize that we, we have the ability to continue to vilify this thing and make a really long narrative out of this that could last many years, saying that we can still find people with the PCR evidence of this virus in the environment. Or we can acknowledge that in the first few weeks, we could slightly slow the progress of this thing down through change of respiratory droplet. So maybe that's possible. That theory still should remain on the table. I'm not gonna reject that because I don't have enough science to prove that that's wrong. But once we've moved past a few weeks and we're six, eight, 10 weeks in, we know that this virus is ubiquitous and we need to stop wearing masks as soon as possible. Because if anything, we're just aerosolizing, not just this virus, but we're aerosolizing viruses, <laughs> period. Right. So if we really have fear of viruses, we should stop wearing masks, I think. but. Do I think this is really making public health worse? No, I don't. I I think that it's probably hurting. We know that it decreases oxygen levels and especially elders over the age of 55, you put a mask on, your O2 levels will drop over the next two hours. None of that's good. Is it really going to increase mortality? I don't know. Nobody knows. But we're putting these masks on and where I've had to settle out is we've gotten into this situation through an irrational process. There's no science that backed up to get us to this point. So I have to every day surrender the possibility that we're going to have a rational resolution of this problem. You can't have a rational resolution of an irrational problem. You can't. (laughs) It just doesn't equate. You're never going to find it. And So we just have to let the irrational response of a vaccine and masks happen. And then during that time, instead of banging our heads against that, we should probably get together as humanity and say, what world would we rather live in? one that we're going to be masked and social distance and not allowed to gather in groups and afraid of hugs and afraid of our loved ones connecting with our loved ones who zoom calls instead of being at their bedside when they're dying. What humanity do we want? What are we going to do together? What are we going to visualize together? What does the hospital of the future look like? What does the clinic of the future look like? What does the schoolyard look like in the future? It should not look like any of those look today because those are all part of an old paradigm of militarized belief that we need to battle and kill everything out there. We don't need to kill everything out there. We need to welcome this stuff in. And when my family members get COVID positive, I'm gonna get really excited knowing that we've gotten a genetic update. I'm not gonna fear that thing. And I'm gonna recognize that, wow, there was this big stressor that happened on the planet that induced coronavirus again, like it does every 10 years to transform again and shift again. What is coronavirus trying to teach us? I don't know entirely, but it's something about the, the, the overall stress level of the planet trying to find loopholes for life beyond. So if you come in t- contact with somebody with corona, thank them and, and ask for your body to intelligently take that update. There's an interesting study that showed that if you get more than seven hugs a day, your risk of influenza the following year is 35% less. It's not social distancing that protects us from viruses. It's biologic communication. It's more microbiome diversity. Every hug brings us in connection through a many things outside of the microbiome. We have genetics that we swap every time we hug. And so the hug that I got from you when I walked in... I got a whole epigenetic update from you as to what level of stress or peace do you have in your body today? And I get that update. And I can bet that it was a pretty good peaceful state that I got because I felt better as soon as I got that hug. Mm. I'm not getting enough hugs these days. And so as soon as I got that, I felt an energy shift in myself. We've had this awesome dialogue for a couple hours and it just unfolds. That's what life is supposed to feel like. And that's the world we want to live in. Is it going to include masks? No, that's not. Nobody wants to live in a world of masks, you know, ultimately. But we did that to ourselves. We got ourselves to a point as a humanity that we masked ourselves up and covered our faces, covered our identities, lost our identities on some level in that process. And so we just need to wake up to that. And we don't need to argue over masks working or not. We don't know what they do. It looks pretty bad right now as far as the science goes. But maybe by some miracle, I'm totally missing the whole thing and I don't know the science and all that's very likely. And I always get a lot of flashback from all of these you know, podcasts that I do of like, well, he, he's ignoring this data on HIV or this like that. Well, first of all, there's no way in a two-hour conversation that we're going to be able to annul 150 years of dialogue of germ theory. <laughs> it's just, it's impossible. So I'm always amazed by the expectations of the audience. It's like, well, you didn't consider this data. Well, actually, I've considered you know, infinitely more data than I've shared today But in the end, we're just in a human dialogue. And there is no amount of science that makes any of this relevant. Now makes it all relevant. It's the whole thing that makes it relevant. Humanity is in crisis. And I don't care if you look at socioeconomics or health or anything. We're in crisis as a humanity. We're in crisis as a planet. And if we continue to ignore that, we'll go into our hospice moment. And in hospice, we get reborn. And I've never seen a patient on hospice that doesn't show those incredible signs of reincarnation, even in the body, where they're suddenly realizing that the narrative they've been living by, the story they've been telling themselves of their identity and their failures was all wrong. And in fact, they've been successful their whole life because they did have two amazing kids or they did touch you know, some elders that they took care of throughout their lifetime. And they did these amazing things and they suddenly see their life do this spectrum of beauty and they stop stressing about their life and they reconcile with long estranged family members and they do all kinds of beauty in those last few breaths of life and obviously it's just like a couple sentences of just i love you so much and i'm so sorry that i, I couldn't communicate that to you more done 30 years of estranged bitter relationships fixed wow. takes just a couple of words at the bedside to totally change it because the veil is so thin at that point, that person is so expanded energetically that if you'll come into the space of somebody who's dying and just share a moment, share a breath, let alone a voice or a word, and you're getting to experience that human being at a volume at an energetic level that you've never touched that person with, they're expanding right now as they let go of that particle moment and go back into waveform that you have an opportunity to touch something you've never touched in that human being. And when this virus scared the hell out of all of us, we isolated people away. They died in isolation in ICUs, untouched for the first time in my medical experience. I've never seen anything scare doctors and nurses out of rooms before. They're always at the bedside when somebody's dying. Not with this one. We scared them so bad that they were too afraid to go in the room because we had to convince them that this was you know, an all-cause mortality event. This was going to kill people if they went in there. And so that's the humanitarian sadness that I have is we had an opportunity to really rise consciousness by touching the people that were expanding in this year of mortality. This was a year of mortality. Was it a pandemic? No, it was a year of mortality as far as I'm concerned. We had a catch-up year to have anyways and we're on our way to a total extinction if we keep this going. It's a year of mortality. We We have many years of mortality ahead of us. If we will touch the people that are dying, we will learn so fast and we will change our behavior so much quicker. If we continue to sterilize death away from the human experience, we will die miserably and we will die lonely. And so we have an opportunity to reconnect and do what the fungi do all the time, which is at the moment of death, they create a life event out of that. As a tree falls, life explodes. A single tree within weeks can have hundred thousand different species on it. That's biodiversity. That's what the fungi want to do. And so as you get planted back into the ground at the end of your life, the fungi will make sure you become more biodiverse and that you create life more abundant than yourself at the biologic level. And meanwhile, on the energetic level, you will have expanded and you will have passed on your experience into the cosmos, into the consciousness, into the knowingness beyond.
0: Wow, dude. Incredible. I love your fractal observation of the universe (laughs) and us. Incredible how everything in the microcosm is just sort of replicated all the way up the line. It's just absolutely fascinating to talk to you. Um, I know both of us have been sitting here on, this, on these these poops for a while, and my back's killing me. I'm like, but wait, I have six more questions. But uh, I think it's a good place to wrap that up in a really hopeful uh, part. I, I want to ask you just one last question um, about the glyphosate issue because. I, I don't do well with gluten, but sometimes I have a moment of weakness. Like last night I had a beautiful um, you know, steak salad at the hotel over here and it had some uh some like uh, sourdough bread chunks in there. I thought, Don't do it, Luke, don't do it. Oh, but it tastes so good. And then while I'm eating, I go, Luke, this is probably not organic flour and it's probably full of glyphosate. Would would you say in your glyphosate experience, um, that if you're eating any type of gluten that is not bona fide organic that it's guaranteed to be sprayed with glyphosate in, in most cases? Yeah, I mean, it's going to have
1: residual glyphosate in there. Um, uh, wheat grown in northern climates is almost always sprayed to desiccate it. So it's not just sprayed for weed killer, it's actually sprayed right at the end of its life to make it dry out faster. And we do that with soybeans, we do that with chickpeas. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of legumes that we spray in addition to wheat right at the end of their, their life cycle so that we can accelerate the, the harvest. And so we can harvest them out of the fields faster. So we spray them three days before harvest so, any of those northern crops that are being sprayed like that are going to have very high residuals. And, you know, it, it's ironic in there, but EWG is a good source to look at this. Uh, the Environmental Working Group website, you can go there and you can see, you know, glyphosate residues reported And kind of the, your, your dirty dozen, they call them as the ones you never want to buy unless they're organic, or the clean 15, which it doesn't matter if they're organic or conventionally grown, they're going to have, you know, trace residuals. And so EWG is good, but there's always some surprises when you see these studies like uh, Stacy's pita chips. I'm going to get hate me all this week from Stacy's, <laughs> but Stacy's naked pita chips, it sounds so healthy compared to the Fritos sitting next to it. And yet it has almost 100 fold more glyphosate than the Fritos have. And so it can be surprising how much wheat can carry. Uh, because the corn's not desiccated. And so the right. corn and the Frito, well, some of it's probably GMO and it's no better done. It's not at all good for the planet. The Frito, because it's corn, not wheat, is going to have you know the potential to have far less glyphosate present in it. So it can surprise you which foods have it. And this you know comes into the fruit and vegetable world, which is how I found my way into all the science. Anyways, I was started a plant based clinic and was feeding people a ton of kale and beets and turnips and all this. And it turns out that you know there was a third of these patients that were doing worse, not better, on these health foods. And these are people in a food desert in Virginia, like fifth generation poverty. I, I, this can't be real. So I just thought they were lying about what they were eating for two years. And finally (laughs) I developed enough relationship where I realized these people, not only did I trust them, they were just some of the most beautiful people that I'd ever met. And I knew by two years in that they were eating healthier than I was. And yet they were having increased inflammation and diabetes and everything getting worse on what I thought was health food. And then you start to look at the residual chemicals in kale and beets and turnips and radishes, and they're among the highest in in the food system. And so I didn't know to tell them to eat organic at the time. And we were in an impoverished area and pennies count when you've got, you know, a, a, a family living on food stamps. So I wasn't about to go say they they couldn't shop at Whole Foods. Not an option. Um, but I yeah, I didn't realize how badly we were poisoning them through the, through this food system there. So Uh, You started by saying somewhere in the beginning how privileged we are to Mm -hmm. pursue a healthy lifestyle. And this was actually predicted by Benjamin Rush at the beginning of our country. He was one of the signers of the Constitution. And he said something amazing to Thomas Jefferson back in the day. He said that we must put health freedom in the Constitution. We must reserve Uh, Free rights and access to to healthcare and otherwise, because if not, in some time in the distant future, there will be a a bourgeoisie kind of wealthy sector that will rise up and control health and take it on for their own good and use it as a weapon against the masses. That was 200 years ago, that was predicted. And so Benjamin Rush in his effort to protect us in the Constitution saw the likelihood that if we made health and access to health an expensive commodity, we could control money on a scale and we can control political power on a scale never seen before. And he, he predicted that. And I think that's exactly what's happening today is we have a very small sector of people that are, have come to own health and they parse it out uh, to, to the highest bidder. And uh, those of us with affluence uh, are spending more and more money every year to sequester those resources for our families and leaving food deserts all around us as we sequester that. And so when we say that there's you know, 1% of wealth in, you know, or 99% of wealth and 1% or whatever we're moving towards there, the same thing is happening in nutrient density. We're channeling the nutrient density into fewer and fewer people at the cost of starvation of the rest of the world. And that's why we need a revolution at the farm level. And until we do an agricultural revolution, we're not gonna see justice. And so in all of our work, as we work with soil compounds and put them into expensive supplements, because it costs all of our money to make Mm -hmm. these things and we're selling supplements to the 1%, we're taking all of those funds and trafficking them back towards these root cause you know solutions that we see in farming energy sector uh, monetary systems and trying to reinvent the foundation because if we just go out and i pay myself millions of dollars cuz the supplement is selling I'll- I'm just part of the problem. No matter how good that supplement is, it's going to kill the planet if I'm not channeling those resources back into soil so that we could have a new soil-based economy. So that's the kind of business mind that we need to start to all adopt is if I am not part of the fundamental solution to soil, water, and air, and that's not my top line of my companies, then I'm part of the problem. There, 1% for the planet BS is... Done. that didn't work. <laughs> Turns out you're going to have to do a little more than 1% of your effort and profits towards the planet. Yeah. She needs 99%. We She can tolerate probably 6% abuse, but we need a good 94% for her. And so we need to just rewrite the top line of companies for soil, water, and air, meaning every dollar that comes in profit, you need to be reinvesting it towards innovation and support to these three ecosystems. And if that's the, the the model that consumers are made aware of, then they can choose who they're gonna buy from. And we can change the whole CPG you know consumer product. Wow, gets, crazy. And this industry. is what
0: you're doing with the ion uh, biome product? Yeah. There's so one there's a, one behind uh, us on the shelf <laughs> if, if your camera's pointed at it. <laughs> it's over there. I know you're you're not like a cheesy sales guy. Like I've heard you interviewed a bunch of times. You've never even talked about your company or product, but maybe just as we come to a close, you know, give a give a plug for that, as it's helping a lot of people, myself included. I take it every day. I give it to my dog every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the ion came out of the, the microbiome studies. So we, we
1: we were trying to figure out why those one third of our patients were getting sick, and we started studying plant and soil. Uh, constituencies like how many nutrients were in there. It turns out that we're devoid of all of our nutrients. We mentioned the amino acids and all that earlier. We we're deleting the the medicine out of our food at the same rate we're deleting the amino acids out with glyphosate. So glyphosate eliminating food was our medicine until 1976, basically, and then ever since we've been taking the medicine out of our food. And so uh, we deleted that. And so as we studied that, we found in the soil a molecule that looked a lot like the chemotherapy medication I used to make. And in that journey of coming to understand the potential for these carbon molecules made by bacteria and fungi, it became clear that they could uh, be a, a method for communication at the cellular level. And so my area of expertise in chemo was around redox signaling which is the communication at the molecular level. And it's basically the transit of electrons. You can imagine like a liquid circuit board moving electrons across a a digital matrix. you know. And so in the biologic field, it it turns out it's the microbiome that builds this communication network between the human cells. And so by putting this stuff back into human cells, by getting the carbon molecules out of fossil soil, we were able to get oxygen and hydrogen to bind to it again, which allowed it to traffic electrons. So we basically just rebuilt the, the, the biochemistry of a good, healthy gut. You know, a big, diverse microbiome of the gut or soils should always be doing this. But in a world of glyphosate, antibiotics, and everything else, nobody has a healthy gut anymore. So we're basically just giving a Band-Aid, basically, back from the microbiome. And it, the cool thing is it doesn't do anything to you. It, it's the only supplement on the market that intends to do nothing in and of itself. It doesn't try to upregulate anything. It doesn't hit any receptors. It's not like vitamin D that changes 2,000 genes in your body. It just is the communication network between the cells. And it turns out that when a cell can talk to another cell, it knows exactly what it needs. So this is basically build, rebuilds the mycelial network of communication between the cells. And it's cool that it's made by the mycelium and the bacteria and everything else. And so the microbiome can, produces this. And so it's just the communication network pouring back into your body. And then we get to see what you can do. And for some people, it's really cool. You get to see this explosion of health. And this, for other people who are quite healthy, you've now just reinforced your network. You've reinforced yourself. You made yourself more resilient. And of course we see, you know, a massive explosion of, you know, the microbiomes, you know, interface with the immune system, you know, and it's beautiful to see the immune system uh, come back on and, and the immune system isn't a thing. So when I say the immune system is coming on, it means that there's now a relationship building, building uh, happening between the outside world and your inside world. And we now know that the, the body's not supposed to sterilize itself and, you know, we don't make antibodies to kill bacteria. We make antibodies to bring ourselves into balance with bacteria and the right bacteria per organ system. So we bring an intelligent, you know, relationship back into the ecosystem as we put the communication network back in and so the product is very exciting because it's basically giving us back a foothold of where we were maybe back you know a few hundred years ago or maybe a few thousand years ago because we've actually been destroying our soils since the beginning of agriculture a long time back and we've only accelerated in the last 30 50 years but really it's been you know millions of years since we've seen the biodiversity that the, this compound it, is demonstrating so we're we're pulling this out of soils that are 60 million years old and so when you go back to that kind of intelligence of the planet that was before the last you know extinction event that soil then has never been replicated again and so we're going back in time to say what is the most diverse you know fungal bed and you know soil intelligence look like and then we're putting that into the human system for the first time which is kind of Goosebumpy moment every time somebody grabs one of those bottles for me, you think there's a human being, that's a Homo sapien, two hundred thousand years of Homo sapiens about to touch soil that was sixty million years old. I wonder what's gonna happen. And so we've seen this thing do some extraordinary things in children. You know, and the conditions that all these people report improving again have nothing to do with the compound. The compound doesn't fix autism or cancer or you know heart disease or mood disorders, depression doesn't fix anything. Literally, it's that humans are able to to heal, Mm -hmm. and if they have enough access to information and if the communication network is up, they're going to start to heal. How fast they heal, it depends on their age, their hydration level, their toxicity level, like so many variables. Mm-hmm. And so when you get the communication network back on, you're never sure what's going to happen. you start detoxing and feel worse for a couple of days. You're going to feel better. Like you just don't know. And so we we like easing people in. There's no rush. Humanity's never seen these molecules at this level of intelligence and, and, and capacity. And so what's the rush? This has never been here before. It's not <laughs> like you lost it two years ago. You need, you're, you're welcoming in mm-hmm. ancient intelligence of planet earth. And so that's why the product's now called ION, which is an acronym for the intelligence of nature. Oh, cool. You're welcoming in the intelligence of nature into your body and you're going to see what you do with that intelligence. And it's going to depend on your perspective, your consciousness, if you will, and, and it's going to shift you in, in some direction or not. And so it's, it's an interesting for something that's so innate or so inert, not really doing anything on in and of itself. It does so much. And for some people they are like, Oh, I tried that. I felt terrible for a couple of days. Well, that's weird. When you take vitamin C, you don't feel terrible. Take vitamin D, you don't feel terrible. Why did you feel terrible for a couple of days? You know, mm-hmm. something was happening in your body. What was happening there? Is you know, is the immune system as it come back on, and as cellular you know, metabolism picks up, what's that going to feel like? Are you going to feel fatigue because the accelerator pedal just went down on the on the gas? Like. So you ease yourself back into this. And so just a couple drops of ancient soil is changing the way that we think about human biology because we've always studied it in a sterile petri dish. So we came to believe in disease. When you add back in the intelligence, of the microbiome and the intelligence of nature, suddenly in a petri dish, you can see cells repairing themselves. So we only believed in disease when we studied ourselves in isolation. When we study ourselves in the context of nature, we find out we're healing machines and we're resilient. And I think we're capable of far more than we've ever done before.
0: Wow. All right, I'm going to drop the mic at that point. That's it, dude. Last thing is uh, tell us three teachers or teachings that have been influential on your life and your work that our audience might be able to go learn from.
1: Boy, Um, Charles Eisenstein is a a modern one. I think his essay that he wrote right at the beginning of the pandemic or, or a month or so in called The Coronation is a must read. Um, it's a, a very well written essay that I think really speaks to why we needed this virus, why why we've created, and the beauty that's going to come out of this. You know, belief in this pandemic and everything else. Um, we, we we have something beautiful happening, and he does a really poetic job of describing why we would have picked Corona, yeah. uh,
0: uh,
1: this coronation to happen. And so, Corona is the coronation of humanity. Uh, we're going to find out that we are much more beautiful than we thought when we come to embrace the viruses that are within us and does a really eloquent job of that. So Charles Eisenstein, coronation. Um, Other teachers that, you know, maybe are overlooked a little bit. um, You know, I I would say, I don't want to get too esoteric because let me think about what next. I mean, ironically, something like, you know, biography of a yogi would be, you know, something in there that, you know, if you want to think about this sea, you know, I, I think when you, if you read that with new eyes, with the idea of the microbiome, you, you might see something new mm. of like when we start talking about seas of consciousness and, you know, yoga and, you know, all of this religious history and all these stories and narratives we've told ourselves, repicture that with the intelligence of nature and the mix of it. And realize we've been storytelling around nature and our connection to it through religion for the begin- since the beginning of time. So uh, read, you know, if you come from the Judeo Christian thing, read the Book of Revelations and, and look through kind of what's happening in these in these current days. And it's going to be tempting to say, "Oh, yeah, it's the end times." but then just ask yourself, has nature ever ended, you know, and Mm -hmm. are we actually at a rebirth time? And when we start to think about this new Jerusalem or this new world that we're spoken of, that's going to emerge from the ashes of the old, what's that Phoenix rising? And, And could we be a part of that instead of waiting for the extinction event to happen? And then we all emerge as spiritual beings on the other side. What if we were to play still? And is the rapture actually a description of a loss of massive life due to the, the toxicity of a planet that can no longer support life. And yet there's a small number left over that get to recreate with mother earth again. And so that's an interesting retake on revelations, you know? And so I'm not trying to be, you know, really flying the face of religion or upset anybody here around, he's trying to rewrite Christianity. No, I'm not at all. I'm just saying we've had a very human perspective on chronic disease and we misinformed ourselves for that. We're having a very narrow definition of, of human experience and in our interpretation of religion. Should we expand that for a moment and think about life in the context of a deity that you might believe in or ascribe to or whatever? We just need to expand past that human perspective and that umfeld that is so narrow and let it become a sea of consciousness for a moment. And if you'll just do that and meditate into that and just ask yourself right now, are you okay right now?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then go watch the news and be like, okay, nothing's good over there. But right now I'm going to meditate <laughs> and I'm going to just ask myself, am I good right now? Yeah, I'm really good right now. I'm not sick. And I, everything's good right now. Like that's all we can hold on to is right now for you. It, everything might be okay right now. Are you in a little bit of pain? Okay, go explore that, whatever it is. But the the reality is um, we're moving into this this higher conscious state and... Um, You said three, Victor Schauberger is another one. If you want to really blow your mind over a great observer of nature, I'd say Victor Schauberger of the 20th century is one of our unsung heroes and geniuses of that century. Um, so read Victor Schauberger's work and and realize that medical science ignored one of its greatest minds in that century because he was a forester, a uh, fourth generation forester in the Austrian mountains. And he made better observations about biology and more profound revolutionary things that we could go and start rebuilding our concept of physiology and the microbiome and all that on Victor's work. And we would be you know, accelerated by 50 years if we ignore his work, it will take us 50 years and we'll be 100 years behind where he was in the the mid-century. So uh, I think there's a real need to move back to that historic brilliance that was coming out of the 1940s and 50s because at the same time we were doing pharmaceutical explosion and kind of going down the wrong pathway, a lot of people going down the right pathway at that time. And interesting tipping point right there in the 1940s, 50s, where we chose a pathway to convenience and control of nature Mm -hmm. instead of a reconnection with her. And we created our our sixth extinction for it. Mm
0: -hmm. Thank you. Amazing conversation. Thank you for your dedication and energy. There's not many people that can go toe-to-toe with me for this (laughs) long and and really keep delivering, you know. It's always me that's like just out of guilt. I'm like, okay, you know, this is unethical to make them keep going. But no, really, man, thanks for your time and all the work you're doing in the world. You're very inspiring and brilliant guy. And uh, just, it's such a pleasure to be able to, sit with people like you so thank you for the opportunity we should we should
1: keep in mind that i may not be an intelligent human but i have a good microbiome
0: (laughs) they're doing all the heavy (laughs) lifting all right where can people find your website social media all that we're going to put the uh the ion biome uh product in the show notes and stuff but any other your organizations or you know, anything you're doing? Education through ZachBushMD.com. Lots of different topics I
1: chase there. Uh, so ZachBushMD.com can find you into that whole kind of universe of thought. And then um, our nonprofit, I would love for everybody to jump on there, FarmersFootprint.us. Uh, so FarmersFootprint.us. And uh, it's a good look at our first project within an emerging huge ecosystem of projects that will focus on soil, water, and air. But our first project within soil is farmer's footprint, and uh, we would love your support uh, to just log on there five, ten dollars, twenty dollars, whatever you can. Or if you can really give a you know a significant gift, we're at a real tipping point with that that project right now, where we can really start to influence much broader discussion and storytelling. At the you know post COVID is really opening up an opportunity for us to really tell a powerful narrative of healing through the food system and through the the agricultural system. So it'd be an awesome time for y'all to jump in and and support that mission
0: at farmersfootprint.us. Cool, man. All right, thanks again. And I look forward to doing this next time I see you. Likewise. Thank you. I know I say this a lot at the end of these episodes, but I just have to acknowledge that I might be the luckiest guy in the world, man. To be able to sit down with such brilliant minds and hearts as someone like Dr. Zach Bush is truly a blessing. And for that, I am eternally grateful. And the fact is that if you listeners weren't there, yeah, I'm talking to you actually, not listeners, you listener, the one listening, uh, the witness, (laughs) If you guys weren't listening, no one would come on my show. See how that works? So I want to thank you for listening because I learned so much and I'm so inspired from having these conversations. Again, I want to give a shout out to my friend Josh Trent for really helping to make this conversation happen, even to the point of giving me a location to record it in. Really kind gesture on his part. And uh, we all got to go out to dinner afterward and I got to know uh, Dr. Bush a bit more. And um, yeah, ironically enough, we all went out to dinner and ate like pizza and pasta <laughs> at an Italian place, which I thought was so funny because so much of this episode was about the dangers of gluten and wheat products and things like that. But I guess because we took our ion biome, which we were taking, um, we were probably much better off. But sometimes you just have to say, F it, you got to live your life. You know, I think the, the neurosis of trying to control your environment and your diet too much um, is probably as bad as just eating crappy food. But I did find it ironic uh, that we went out and that's where we chose to go for whatever reason. I wasn't the leader that night. I would have probably chose something other than Italian, although I love it. It is hard to avoid the gluten and it always gives me a runny nose and other problems. Anyway, I digress. The fact is uh, fantastic guest. Um, Thank you to every single one of you that kept bugging me to get Dr. Zach Bush on the show. And, uh, you know, we finally got it done. And he did not disappoint. What an incredible human being. So inspiring. I mean, what he's doing to educate people about the soil and the nature of our food and how that affects really all biological organisms on Earth is just absolutely fascinating, inspiring, and so important right now. And also to be able to clear through the bog of confusing Misinformation around the nature of viruses and how concerned we really need to be. And um, personally, I have all the faith in my immune system. I do so many things to keep myself healthy. All the products that I plug on the show are all things that I use at home. And I—I uh, I don't know. I just don't walk around in fear of things like that. Now, when I walk by a cell tower, I got to work on that a little bit. <laughs> but. Um, You know, that's why I created... Oh, perfect perfect segue into my EMF Home Safety Masterclass. Speaking of uh, cell towers. No, seriously though, uh, my course, and not just because it's mine, I'm just going to say this course is so awesome, you guys. You can find it at lukestory.com slash EMF Masterclass. We've got a couple of few hundred people in there now really digging the content. People are benefiting immensely. I'm getting very positive feedback. It's over five hours of videos, a bunch of PDFs. It's only $149. And this class makes it really simple. Like EMF gets confusing. And if you go online and start to study how to fix it, I mean, I was frustrated with it. And that's why I just decided I was going to make a course and just simplify this, streamline it, tell you what to do. So in the course, I give a number of different recommendations at the end. And you can pick your degree of thoroughness. You know what I mean? So there's like really simple, quick solutions that still give you complete access to all your technology all the way to turning your whole house into a Faraday cage like and everything in between. So I'm really excited to share this with you. Again, it's lukestory.com slash EMF masterclass. And if you're eating organic, doing all the right things and you still feel like shit, it might have something to do with the EMF exposure in your life. Unless you happen to be so fortunate enough to uh, live in the middle of nowhere. But even then... I've found some surprisingly high EMF levels and things like, you know, magnetic fields in the home from bad wiring and all kinds of stuff that's just really hard to figure out on your own. So that's that. Then uh, let's go ahead and plug uh, Zach's product again, Ion Biome. You can find that at ionbiome.com. I O N B I O M E. And if you use the code Luke1KS, you're going to save yourself to be honest, I forget the amount. I think it's 10%. Don't quote me on that. It's at least 10 to 10. Let me say it that way. I don't think it's 15. I think it's 10%. And that goes uh, through November 30th, 2020. And I've got it on my web store as well. I love this product. I take it every day, twice a day, religiously, no matter what. I travel with it. It's it's the shit. It's badass. Um, I don't know if I'm supposed to swear when I plug stuff, but I'm not getting paid to plug that. <laughs> so I guess I can say whatever I want. Next up is Sovereignty. That's sovereignty.co slash Luke. These guys make some fantastic adaptogenic herb blends. They come in these little packets. You've got one for the daytime to improve focus. It's called Purpose. And you have one called Dream that you take at night. If you take one of these in the morning, you're going to have clarity, energy, brain's going to be turned on. Take one at night before bed, calms you down, relaxes you, gets you ready for sleep. So I love that they just... Kept it simple yet comprehensive. And you can find that at sovereignty.co slash Luke. Now, there's no discount here, but what's really cool that they do at Sovereignty is they give you your favorite money back guarantee. So if you buy the product and you don't like it, they give your money back and then they buy you your favorite supplement. So that tells me people are not doing many returns or these guys will be going broke. It's an awesome product. Sovereignty.co slash Luke. And then last but absolutely not least, a company that I've been supporting for years, long, long time. I want to say, as long as I've known Daniel Vitalis, who's a friend and a guy that's been on the show a bunch of times now, I think he's probably my my uh, uh, most, uh, most, how do you say it? He's the guest that has appeared on the most episodes. I think that's how you say it. His company called surthrival.com, like survive and thrive, surthrival.com. And I've been on this stuff for years, man. I love their colostrum, their elk antler extract, their pine pollen extract. They've got a great reishi product, a CBD product. Oh, that's another thing I give to my dog Cookie is they make a CBD spray product. And it's also a liposomal CBD. So it's highly absorbable. Uh, many CBD products are hard to assimilate, all the good stuff. Uh, and I spray a couple of squirts on that on Cookie's food every morning, along with her pet version of the Ion Biome. So I love Surthrival, man. They make great stuff. And you can find it at surthrival.com. And that is spelled S-U-R-T-H-R-I-V-A-L, surthrival.com. The discount code there is 10% and it is STYLE10 at surthrival.com. And with that, my friends, we're probably into like four or five hours of this podcast at this point. But, uh, you know, the most important part was the conversation with Dr. Zach Bush. And uh, I'm hoping that you were inspired and also really relieved after getting some of the science, the data uh, about the nature of viruses. And I think, you know, if you were paying attention, you could probably be a little less afraid at this point and get back to living your life. You know what I'm saying? Clean up that gut. Get your immune system fired up and live your best life. And uh, that is my hope and wish for each and every one of you Lifestylist podcast listeners. And if you're hearing my voice right now, you're a super fan. And for that, I love you. I'll be back next week with Saadi Simone, Spiritually Sassy, How to Dance with Your Shadow and Free Yourself from Suffering. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening.